I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. Nah. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, and every time we move and it feels just like, like this, feels just like this, it's just, it's like, like who the donkey, we would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild in our circumference, make assumptions, it ain't nothing new, fucking my fucking you, I'll be chewing through these rounds. Hello cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of The Debrief, I am your host Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you after a bit of a hiatus to talk about the most recent episodes. Today's episode with Marianne Williamson uh, was a premium episode, so you can subscribe at patreon.com slash badfaithpodcast to watch it in full, or watch a short clip that was put up for free over at uh, Bad Faith YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe. It helps promote us against the ever-encroaching algorithm. And the episode before, the free episode from last Thursday, where I sat down with Kate Willett, uh, comedian extraordinaire and Leslie the third, a podcaster himself and cultural critic to talk about the new Barbie movie. I'm sure there's lots of thoughts and feelings about both episodes and other events in the news. So let's get to it today without any more dilly dallying. Lysol, what's on your mind? Hey, Bri, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? What's, 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 uh, on the noggin today? Doing good. Uh, I appreciate you bumping it back to 4.30 so I could be here after work. No problem at all. It also enabled me to clean up after myself after di- making dinner. <laughs> Are you streaming this on YouTube or Rumble too, or just Colin today? I am not. We're just doing Colin. Nice. So I was wondering, have you seen I'm a Virgo? Uh, so I've started it, but I haven't finished it. But I do plan to talk to uh, Boots Rally about it, so I'll have watched it before I do that. Obviously, yes, that's what I was. Go- that's what I was going to request. Um, there's something about the way that they package things like the crisis of capitalism with kind of like the you know like kind of like plain plain uh, plain rhetoric and imagery that's kind of like. 
this is the the sugar that helps the medicine go down. I'm like increasingly trying to explore more kind of like fictional ways of changing people's minds rather than trying to like nonfiction them to death. Yeah, I am totally with it. I frankly think that even less didactic means are necessary. I've been thinking a lot about fiction and the cultural impact of books like 1984 and Animal Farm have had and how, you know, it's even more subtle and allegorical than a movie like I'm a Virgo or a show like I'm a Virgo. And um, given some of the ways the discourse has seen this become, frankly, unnavigable to me, <laughs> um, it the tension between what online audiences clearly want and my unwillingness to say that has, I think, come close to reaching an apex. Um, and instead of just becoming increasingly frustrated talking about things that I think matter while nobody cares, I am very much contemplating just a move into fiction for exactly that reason. Right. At, at least it's like a vacation for like a month or two. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Look around. Um, I don't know what's going to be there to come back to the political space. I, I, I don't know. Like. I see what the market is there for, and I just I cannot. I don't know, man. I mean, I, I totally feel that. Have you have you seen they clone Tyrone? I have not. Uh, I've heard good things though. It's really good. I mean, it's John Boyega and Jamie Fox, and they really just like let Jamie Fox ham it up, and he's incredible. But it's also like it's also kind of like a dystopian thing, and it's like kind of like politics. Like it plays around with the idea of like organized abandonment and like testing on minorities. It's got kind of a Tuskegee vibe to it. Um, I'd be interested to see what you thought about it. I saw the preview and I'm definitely interested, but I have not checked it out yet, but I'll put it on my list. Yeah. Have you been following into the stuff going on in Niger right now? Not really. I saw some tweets about it today. Did you want to fill the audience in? Um, so Niger had a coup. I think this is now the third or fourth Franco Francophile, um, uh, African country to, to, to do, to do a coup. Uh, the United States has a big drone military base there. And apparently we, um, threatened to withhold um threatened to with, withhold spending money there and they said and their response was like no no you have plenty of homeless people why don't you take care of yourself first mm. yeah i'll definitely follow up but i, I haven't honestly got the time today yeah. uh so for for marianne um That, that that pause is pretty much how I feel about her campaign. It's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I like her, her drawing contrasts with RFK. I think it's important that somebody's pointing out that RFK is to the right of Biden on a lot of stuff, if not most stuff. Mm -hmm. And also that RFK has a book coming out in September as well. Yeah. Um, it, I, I don't know about the book stuff. I mean, I just feel like it's a, it, it does start to feel at a certain point, like people are coming up with reasons to not like or support Marianne. And you really don't have to. You can just mind your own business and vote for who you want to vote for. But it becomes a little exhausting, I got to say, when the goalposts keep moving as many times as they've moved. You know, okay, I also disagree with her on Israel-Palestine, but it's a strategic advantage to vote for her in the primary. People say still no on principle, but then they'll be open to RFK Jr. because they'll say he presents a real challenge to Biden. Well, that is a creation of your own making. The reason that RFK Jr. is polling better is because you've decided to tell pollsters that you are likely to vote for him, but not for your support behind Marianne. And 
also spend a lot of your free time, not you obviously, but people are spending a lot of their free time seemingly kind of virtue signaling about how they're a real leftist because they're willing to point out that Marianne is not. Although you don't seem to get true leftist points for pointing out the ways that RFK Jr. Uh, is not a leftist, including not even pretending support to support Medicare for all, focusing on social issues or having anything less than a far right position in Israel, Palestine. So I'm a little, you know, I don't really care to keep debating with people because if I say anything that's even vaguely true, like RFK <laughs> Jr. also has a book coming out, I get accused of being in the pocket of Big Marianne. I didn't even frankly want to do this interview, but, you know, I, I have to wrestle with what, if I'm treating her worse than another candidate because of our relationship. Um, and she wanted to come on. She's been feeling shut out from the press. She has been obviously shut out by even left press I mean, even independent options like Twitter, which said that they would have her on the same way they had RFK and um, Ron DeSantis on. Uh, and so, you know, she's going to avail herself of every opportunity there is. And I'm not going to tell her no if she wants to come on and talk to the audience. So I don't know. People, people, it seems to me, are exploiting her presence in the primary by using her to make arguments about how they're not letting, allowing us to have open primaries or have debates and things like that, but also are seemingly irritated that she's running at all. And it's, you know, people do what they want to do. It's none of my business. I'm not arguing with anybody about it. Yeah. So I I think I'm, I'm getting the vibe that the, the, the Republican debate in August might be the only debate because if Trump doesn't show up, I doubt they'll have a second one with the kind of also rans. And I'm also getting the vibes that Biden and Trump aren't going to debate in the general. Do you think the American voting public would, you know, would would swallow such a such a pill? The idea that there's not going to be any debates, considering how much of like the procedure is a matter of kind of like history and tradition and stuff like that. Do you think they I don't think they'll care? You don't care? <laughs> I honestly don't think they'll care. I mean, honestly, such a small percentage of Americans watch any of the, even the primary debates. And I, you know, huge, huge swaths of the country don't even know there are other candidates running by design, you know, by the media's design. Um, you know, someone who's an ostensible left leaning ally like Eric Levitz in the New York magazine will write up an article saying that there's no leftist challenger to Joe Biden other than Cornell West. And it's, I mean, this is like Bernie blackout on steroids, you know? Mm -hmm. So is the mainstream public going to complain that there's no debates when they only think one candidate is running? No. Now, should they be upset? And should this be a real moment to illustrate how we don't have a democracy? I think so. But in order to do that, you'd have to have a good leftist candidate to point to as the person that is warranting the debates, given who's declared that person is obviously Marianne Williamson, if people seem more interested in rolling their eyes at Marion Williamson than actually using it for strategic leverage. So I hope everybody feels good about that decision when they're uh, <laughs> queuing up to vote for Biden next fall. Do you think Trump's making a mistake not debating? Because I kind of feel like him, like he, he's one of those candidates that really benefits from the debate in terms of kind of being in this element. And I feel like he could possibly swat Ron DeSantis out of the race with a one comment in August. So it kind of feels like he's making an Error. Well, we'll it's see. But it's not just DeSantis. I mean, there's a very fluid field happening on the right. Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think just on paper and based on the words coming out of his mouth, is perhaps the most fascistic of the people running on the right. 
just had a huge surge in polls and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but was like given that plus Ron DeSantis' decline had him looking like a real contender. Um, and you know, who knows how their field will shape up and what the effect of the most recent, recent Trump indictment may or may not be, you know, there's always the possibility of health issues from some of these, uh, very old candidates like both Biden and Trump. And so I do think there's, it's, it's, it's largely unknown. So while I think that Trump doesn't really gain a lot from entering into the debate right now, I don't know what the field will look like in September, October, November. Remember at this point in 2019, um, it was a low point for Bernie in, in August. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was releasing in a very organized way, a bunch of policy proposals every week with a very fluid social media rollout. The media loved her. And the question everyone was asking is why would I vote for cranky old Bernie when Elizabeth Warren is right here with the same policies are better and also a woman, you know, and it wasn't until the heart attack in October that Bernie really rebounded. So, you know, it's hard for me to get too invested in making proclamations at this stage when it's still the last day of July. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think I think there's an argument to be made that if Trump doesn't show up in the debate, nobody watches it. And that might be a more effective way of preventing DeSantis to get press. It's also the type of thing like there's like there's been a bunch of billionaires like I'll, I'll you know, I'll challenge Michael Jordan to a basketball game for a million dollars. Michael Jordan's like, well, if I win, I get a million dollars. If I lose, I somehow lost to some random guy. So there's nothing really in it for me as the as the leader. Yeah, I mean, if I were advising Trump, I don't know that I would tell him to debate, although Trump's different. I mean, Trump is. Trump has literally never failed in that context. Right. So, you know, uh, it could, I don't know. I would say, I might say don't do it because you have nothing to lose, but a world where a a new voice emerges, not DeSantis, we've heard him and he's not going to come off any better than he does in the context of a debate. Um, But, you know, the American public getting exposed to a Vivek type person Things, stranger things have happened. And I, I do think that, you know, I, I understand skepticism that the new indictment will hurt Trump at all, given the last two uh, didn't at all. But I do think that the uh, Raffensperger election ceiling stuff, the nature of that is different than the New York case, which seemed personal and not related to his job as president. Or the uh, documents case in which there were ample opportunities to point to liberal hypocrisy because everybody and their mama took documents and there have been different punishments meted out to people um, who've done substantially the same thing. Yes, Trump obstructed, but even without the obstruction, there's a charge there that wasn't leveled at Pence, Biden, or Hillary Clinton. Yeah. It's also interesting that uh, Trump is saying he's not going to debate because he doesn't consider Fox. I forget what, what phrasing he was, but he he, think, he he doesn't think he doesn't think Fox is going to give him a fair shake. And it's like I don't know if there's a power struggle between Fox News and Trump. Who do you think wins at this point? Who 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 can, who commands more of the Republican base? Trump. Trump. It's always been Trump, which is why Fox News has bent the knee to Trump, and which is why Tucker Carlson behind the scenes, as we know from the Dominion voting disclosures hated having to do election denialism and support Trump 
um, and was saying, thank God we're almost out of the woods of having to talk about Trump, but very publicly was supportive of him and even was supportive of him in the professional context by trying to get his coworkers fired who were openly critical of Trump because despite him also agreeing and being critical of Trump, he know he knows what side of uh, the bread is buttered or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, knew that uh, pro Trumpism was good for business. And now you see right now, he's like kind of charting in his own lane and doing his own thing on Twitter, but he's not coming out to criticize Trump. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Donald Trump kind of set the template for how to benefit from adversarial coverage. I think the same way that the Democratic primaries were like Bernie and Elizabeth back to back against everybody else. There was that one Trump primary where they literally started off with giving every all all nine people on the stage a chance at Trump. And I feel like Trump comes out looking better. So if Trump went on Fox and Fox was treating him like an asshole. I think he actually I think he would actually get a bump from that rather than it be a decline. I think I think so, too. I think so too. Yeah. And I'm, it's, I don't know. Trump in the Republican debate was some of the finest political theater I've ever seen. And I would love to watch that again. Like, just, I mean, just somebody, somebody pretend to be Jeb Bush so he can just kind of like push him over with a feather. I mean, you'll get your chance again. It'll just be in the general. And, you know, I, I remember watching, I think it was the third debate with Hillary, maybe the second at some family friends, uh, a family friends home who are Caribbean Canadian. And we were at their apartment in New York and they were kind of watching as outsiders and how embarrassing it was as an American, the spectacle of it, but also how clean, like purely like how obvious it was that Trump was winning the debate. And so you could not like him all day and night, but we were all kind of quiet in the room because you could not deny he was winning. I, I think that was the debate. He was following Hillary around the stage. Interesting. I, I always viewed those to be much more ambiguous in terms of who won compared to the primary debates. If I were, if I were umpiring that match, I would have cleanly granted the victory to Trump and not because he just bullied her or lied, but because he was able to say true things about her that were bad. And um, I think that was maybe also the one where he had Bill Bill Clinton's victims in the front row. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's that's Biden is getting into territory where Trump can pull those kinds of stunts again. We'll see what happens with the latest Hunter Biden revelations with this Archer fellow, his uh, co-partner, business partner, friend. Um, and if we get in a world where Biden can incredibly be accused of corruption and nepotism and you know, special special treatment and, and ringing the justice system and all of that, then it becomes a wash. I'm not saying like actually morally it becomes a wash, but in the eye of the public, it becomes a wash the same way that Clinton's corruption and Trump's corruption in 2016 became a wash for voters and not the thing that they were going to decide uh, how to vote on the basis of. Yeah, I can see that. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm skeptical of them having general debates. I feel like the, the general debates are always dicier because two parties have to agree versus the primaries where it's just one entity making. And I feel like I feel like Biden will do anything he can to avoid debating Trump one on one to the point where I could actually see them hosting some primary debates just so they could say, look, he debated somebody. But maybe that's just my perspective where I view debates as kind of like a critical part of 
people making their decisions. Cause I mean, other than that, what do we have? We have like interviews, we have uh, campaign ads, stuff like that. I feel like the, the debates really help people. I don't, I don't know, but I guess if, if not that many people watch the debate, it doesn't make that much of an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, look, we'll see what happens. Lysol. Thanks for calling in. I'm going to push on cause I don't want to stay on for too long today. And it looks like I can get through this whole queue. Cause there's not that many. Yeah, for sure. Keep the faith. Thanks, thanks for calling in. Keep the faith. I'm going to go straight in order since the queue is not that long today. Jonathan, what is on your mind tonight? Uh, a lot of things. It's actually been a while since I've been able to call in since you were doing those early ones when I was uh, otherwise occupied. So I, too, am grateful you you pushed it back uh, a little bit later this time. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. So what have you but, been up to? What are you thinking about? Uh, a lot. Firstly, I got to say you did a fabulous job this morning in play- explaining inflation to Robbie. And, uh, I, <laughs> I was I trying to remember our uh, our old uh, chat with uh, Professor Kaboob. Well, you did a fabulous job, and uh, I also thought you might be pleased to know that I do not, as Bhaskar Sankara, uh, you know, said, uh, believe that uh, that we didn't get Medicare for all because we did too much identity politics. So, I thought you might be happy to hear that. Yeah. The, that was a special, like, he hasn't evolved at all since that originally happened. Like, a lot of those people haven't. And it's just, like, it always just it kind of clobbers me upside the head every time I realize, like, these people have not absorbed anything since then. I don't, it almost feels like a bit of a regression, to be honest, because I don't remember, I don't remember that identity politics like it wasn't like Bernie lost and immediately it was like, oh, obviously it was because of identity politics. I mean, there were some people who insisted that him referencing the fact that we live in a diverse nation at the top of speeches was like a bridge too far. Because I mean, yeah, there was almost, some of that. I think, but I think you're you're right. I think it was because that was a big thing after the 2016 election. Okay, basically they were saying Hillary Clinton lost because of identity politics. And that was where I first started hearing that line. So you might be right. Like, they might be uh, even regressing a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And there are leftists that I like and respect who still, who who will continue to say, like, Bernie did too much identity politics in 2020, and that's why he didn't do as well as 2016. My, my, that, like, that seems like a wild thing to say to me when, the, the biggest difference between those years is that Bernie was all in on corruption and calling his opponent corrupt in 2016 and did not do that in 2020. And I have a hard time believing right. that a, he had come out swinging, talking about Biden's corruption, that anyone would have given a damn. But at the top of his speeches, he said, I hope that all people in America, black and white and Asian and Native American and yada, 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 join hands and fight corruption. Like, no one gives a shit. Like, it was literally two sentences at the top of speeches, a nod to American diversity. And people would think that he was up there with his arm around Ibram X. Kendi every every uh, campaign rally, waxing on about intersectionality and uh, um, CRT. I mean, the, 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 the retconning of him playing down corruption and pretending that he played up identity politics, it's just like, wild and starts to feel i'm sorry like, like starts to feel that, that that's people's focus starts to feel bigoted to me like what yeah. how little does someone have to acknowledge the reality of racial plurality in the, in the united states of america and the fact that there are still racial harms occurring to groups how how little is going to be enough for you 
if if you think that what Bernie did in 2020 is a bridge too far in an identity politics realm. Yeah, I mean, I think those of us who live in the real world can see that every word you just said, as far as that goes, is correct. Like, basically, the diagnosis is correct. Like, he could have come out swinging. He did better when he came out swinging uh, yeah. in Nevada. Okay, that was where they had that, uh, you know, um, that video. They were playing video of Biden saying he was going to cut Social Security. Mm-hmm. He was going to cut every single thing. Like that sort, those sort of aggressive ads were what got the overwhelming victory in Nevada. Okay, and like yeah. pulling back the choke chain is what's. I think everybody here that listens to you is here because they know that. And like Bhaskar Sankara trying to trying to gaslight us. I was just like. Really, man? Like, I can't even get mad. It was just so ridiculous and so um, kind of low effort almost. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I meant to, to go in and, and say something about that, but I missed that calling, unfortunately. And so I had to bring that up here. But I did want to talk about the, the Marianne one, which I, I actually I thought was pretty good, actually. I think you uh, you got the parts that were important so i mean like the kinds of things that we you know disagree with her on uh you know you you kind of got her to say her her honest take on there and you know as far as you know the people that disagree with her on those things are uh you know are concerned she self-owned but you also brought up these very important aspects of this and you know keep in mind like firstly as somebody who was at a 2005 APAC conference, mm-hmm. uh, that description of RFK's takes is uncannily accurate. Like, you know, that's one of those things that I've been talking about for a while. And then I noticed back after the, the um, Crystal and Sagar interview uh, that, you know, he dropped a little a little line about the, uh, you know, the fence that was part of the sales pitch of the company that manufactured those, uh, you know, the barrier fence around Gaza and, mm-hmm. and the West Bank. Uh, I was like, there's only one place he would have heard that. And that is a confab of either APAC or the Washington neocon blob. And I know because I've been in it. Yeah. OK, like these people set up booths and make that pitch. And that's the only place he would have heard that, because that's not something that circulates around the activist community. And yeah. he's, he keeps spouting lines that are that are basically directly from. And the fact of the matter is, APAC hasn't updated their messaging in 20 years. Like it's literally the same lines their advocates are using now. But he is taking lines that sound like they came from a conference and from rubbing elbows with high level people. So he's dead to me. Like if I'm going to yeah. pull the lever for somebody like oh, it will definitely be for Marianne over him. But I mean, the more important thing that I think you you brought out there is that, you know, there is a net benefit to having anybody in there that can, you know, even RFK to a certain degree, they can basically show the Democratic Party for what they are. Okay. They're dishonest. They're intentionally rigging the thing to keep these people off the debate stage. They're anti-democratic. And the more they show this and the more this gets in the public spotlight, and the more people see it, the more drag it creates on them doing exactly what they've been doing. And that is a net positive. And there's there's nobody that can take that away from her, no matter how, you know, how much she, uh, you know, I may think that she has kind of a, a pedestrian analysis of what's going on, has no idea 
of what she'd be facing if she did get in there. Um, you know, has you, there's like I have all kinds of complaints about Marianne, but like what her being in there and RFK being in there is a net benefit. It's creating drag, and that's important. That's something we need. Yeah, I mean, I guess I I I don't know that I would agree that she doesn't have a sense of what she's facing any more so any more than any candidate who's like never been a senator or doesn't have any traditional experience. Um, I think she, you know I do think that she has a good historical perspective. And she's a lot. I think her depth of knowledge is actually a lot greater than people give her credit for. This is all relative, but you know, I don't know if anybody really knows what the, what it's going to be like until they're they're there. Yeah, I'm but. talking more about a structural, like a kind of a structural power analysis. Um, you know, there's there's a, a degree to which I think, um, you know, even to a certain degree, her generational cohort has a, a problem in terms of you know, kind of the way they were educated about American politics and American history, and I think that they underestimate the level of heavy-handed violence the system can bring to bear to protect itself. And I guess my, my, only, I, yeah. my only pushback would be that she does frequently bring up all the assassinations of her youth and how much that those changed American politics. So there, there is a part of me that just only would offer some pushback insofar as when, I, when you ask her what you think happened to her entire generation, she's very quick to say, they killed everybody who was even a little bit successful in in change making. Well, that part I think her generational cohort does know. In fact, there, um, you know, there's there's a whole um, bunch of literature on you know particularly the Kennedys and and that sort of thing. But uh, you know, I think the part they underestimate is the history of uh, Red Scare. Uh, apparatus, the history of, you know, the collusion of private enterprise and uh, the state apparatus to uh, persecute and um, and marginalize and, you know, um, isolate um, and ostracize, uh, you know, people that uh, that push back uh, against that order to ruin. And that is. Like there's a long history of that as well, and you have to know the mechanics of these things uh, to understand. I think what you're up against, and I don't. I like from what I'm seeing, even on her website, you know. Again, like I appreciate that she supports Medicare for all, which Bobby Kennedy certainly doesn't, and she's not letting it off the agenda. Like I think you brought that up there. I don't think that she has a well-rounded plan for what she's going to do when these constituencies come for her and how they're going to come for her. I don't think like, I don't even think any of the elected officials who have been running for office in the past 20 years have any concept of this. Like, you know, yeah. they know they're one little area. Like they don't have a complete yeah. analysis because it's such a vast blob. Well, if that's the critique that she's kind of where even Bernie was and not really having a plan, then I agree. I mean, no one seems yeah, to that's 100%. really have and for one. better or for worse. I think you brought up in that interview that Bernie, you know, for better or for worse did run. He did happen. And that's something you, you kind of have to contend with that milieu. And I feel like she hand waved that aspect of because you brought up that there's reasons why people are instinctively skeptical 
and that they're, you know, kind of uh, much more hostile to her than they were to Bernie, because essentially she's kind of, um, you know, bringing a, a very similar energy without realizing there's certain hurdles that because of what the ways that Bernie screwed up, she now has to clear. And that may not be fair, but that's that's the reality that, that she stepped into there. And, you know, I think it's a little dismissive to say it's all, uh, you know, everybody is just unreasonable or sexist or something like that. That there There is an element of that there. I think you were right to bring that up. Um, but, yeah, it is it is a very like there is, again, even structurally, like there's those bars that Bernie needed to clear that he didn't have a proper analysis to clear and understanding to clear. And I don't think that she has significantly more than he did. Yeah. But I, like I said, I will pull the, like, I would pull the lever for her over RFK and, you know, just for the net benefit it brings, um, you know, certainly would, uh, would show up to my local Democratic primary and, and do at very least that. Yeah. I, I, it just, you know, at this point, it feels like three of us will do that, and uh, the rest of the left is going to very bravely, I guess, stay home or vote for Biden or something. I don't think I believe that. I think they say that because lots of reasons. But is that the the discrepancy between uh, that you were talking about earlier with Lysol? Um, you know, the that you don't feel like anybody's occupying your lane or something like that. Um, I mean, it's not just that. Work. I mean, I'm really not trying to start beef. Well, if I did start beef, I could get a lot of attention online, to be clear. <laughs> but yeah. I have no, I don't, I'm not really interested in that. But like, it does feel like I, I've been, I've been observing Twitter trends, um, and I've been observing YouTube trends. And it seems to me that there's an appetite for people making very declarative statements based in knowledge they couldn't possibly have. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of YouTubers say things like, like, I don't know, like having a willingness to engage in being a little bit more credulous about conspiracy stuff than I am. Like, like I'm open. I'm interested in this alien stuff. I'm open to it, but I'm not going to sit, say something like they're keeping something from us. I know that they're, I know that the government is keeping something from us. I, I'll, I'll talk about the evidence that we have and what it may or may not show, but I'm not willing to go the extra mile of saying, oh, I know what's really going on. You know, I know, yeah. I know that, I know that there's something really suspicious about the way that Obama's cook died. I know, like, there's a, they're there. We gotta investigate this. I mean, anything's possible is my view on it. But also, that it, the person died of natural causes is also possible. I don't, I'm not willing to like, let me, let me shepherd you through the mysteries of the news is only I know that they are like only I can unravel this mystery. I, I just, I don't, I don't have that in me. And I yeah, also, that's my basic epistemics as well, actually, I, um, you know, again, like if you don't have you call it, uh, you know, menace rea. Uh, but you know, if I'm not in somebody's head, I'm not going to presume to know that because I can't possibly know that. Like there's an epistemics, like I'm not yeah. sure about this. The opposite could also be true. It could be yeah. true. The opposite could also be true. A whole bunch of things in between could be true. And but I mean, it's kind of isn't that always the way like Twitter and YouTube have kind of been? I mean, kind of, but it just it feels like I don't know. I 
the the number of lefties who are it's just it's so hard for me to say vaguely and I don't want to be specific because I'm really not trying to come for anybody because a lot of these people are people that I like but it's it's like um you know the thing where we say that we are crediting the right being right about something because it's used to embarrass the left like there's a lot it just it feels to me that there's a fine line between doing that and relishing every opportunity to say only positive things about the right. Like, I know I sound like I sound like so many people that I've criticized in the past who've accused me of doing this exact same thing. So like, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it's gotten to a place, I guess, where it's getting a little too much, even for me. Where, yeah, I've, I've seen you, you know, like and people I genuinely like, but it's like, you like, well, take this RFK junior stuff, for instance, like, can you imagine if Bernie or Marianne said what RFK Jr. has said about Israel? Like, it would be it would be nonstop, like, weeks-long draggings. And while there have been some really principled critiques that came from people like Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté, they still, like, there still just feels like an energy gap around, like, the criticism of someone like, Marion, or even the squad members who I, we've been criticizing for a long time for doing genuinely bad things like voting against this um, Ukraine spending oversight position, right? Like that's a completely fair hit on all of those people, including Bernie Sanders. But like criticize them. They, you absolutely should criticize them for voting against that. Also, there's like largely indifference to RFK for saying, you know, if you if you you know, Palestine, you know, Israel accidentally only kills Palestinians and Palestinians are, are their, their raison d'etre is murdering Israeli kids or whatever. You know, it's, it just, the, it just, there's some, there feel, I feel an asymmetry that seems to be created by the reality that like left politics is just not interesting to anybody anymore, including people on the left. Like literally, like you can feel how little people care about Medicare for all. Like I'm not even, I'm not trying to be an asshole, but like no one gives a shit. Like, and that makes me feel like, well, did you ever give a shit? Like what was, if it wasn't actually about the policy, what was the draw, the energy around Bernie in 2016 actually about? And, and I don't understand it. I'm not going to pretend to have answers, but my confusion leads me not to feel like there's a real firm path forward in this space, you know? Yeah, I mean, that was like, because keep in mind, like, uh, like our, the group that I'm part of, uh, Real Progressives is, is tied in with March for Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. And like, we've been dealing with that same frustration because we're having a lot of difficulty, uh, you know, keeping these things salient to a lot of people because we don't have platforms with a whole lot of reach. Uh, and, uh, and, and frankly, um, it seems like, uh, you know, the conversation has gone off to other things. Uh, yeah, and we've definitely uh, been feeling that frustration. I think when you mention it to people, obviously it's very relevant because uh, people are, are dealing with the problems related to it, but it's not, um, in the, it's not in the conversation the way it should be. And I do feel like a lot of that had to do with 
the realization that, oh, even the people that are supposed to be on our side on this issue don't really want it to pass. And that, I think, did a, did a real number on people's heads and made them, um, you know, just kind of feel weak and powerless and afraid to, you know, to really, I don't know, to, to stick with it as stubbornly as we did. Very cynical, yes, Natalie. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I look down the timeline of somebody that I like, and it's like, you can, you can, and I feel this on Rising. Like, I feel it, and that's why I don't like it. I'm sensitive to it. What You, you can feel that if you say uh, Donald Trump, um, the, you know, Biden is weaponizing his government against Donald Trump, you know, which is possible, you know, and it seems frankly like it would almost be <laughs> it would almost be negligent for him to be the president and not be trying to save his own ass to save his own son, like like just realistically yeah. human nature wise. So like I'm in, I'm inclined to believe that's true, and I'm very happy to say that and to talk about that and to talk about what the evidence shows in that regard. But at the same time, I know that we if we do a segment about that, where Robbie and I are piling on the Justice Department and whether or not Hunter Biden gets special treatment, then that'll do well. And if we do a segment about, I don't know, the uh, conclusion of the UPS strike threat, it will not. And so what kind of incentive structure is that set up? And what does that mean for all of the micro choices that are being made across the media sphere? Right. And I, I have enough. Like- I, I can put my foot down and say, well, we're going to do this anyway. And everyone's happy to do it. Like I can keep doing it. And my salary is not can, you know, is not tied to how many clicks a video gets. So I, I can I can do that. But I still sense the pressure to cover subjects that the audience wants. And the audience doesn't seem to be that interested in straight reporting on any number of domestic policy issues. What they want is a validation of their belief that everything is rigged against some of the most powerful people in the country and want very little conversation about how actually everything is rigged against the weakest people in the country. I see. I'm not sure. I think what they want is stories about how the powerful are doing the rigging and there, there has to be a way to contextualize some of those things so they can be connected in their minds to the things that they think are relevant. And I'm sure it would take experimentation uh, with framing and things like that, but I do believe that you do have a unique talent for that sort of experimentation and that sort of intuition. And if somebody can figure out how to tell those stories – in the right way and even what to uh you know what segments to put before and after to keep people interested and feeling like there's a continuity with those other stories if somebody's going to figure that out it's probably going to be you i don't know man jonathan i just i had just the best vacation and i i came back feeling so light and one day after having to be reimmersed in twitter it feels like, okay. I mean, it's, the thing is, I'm not even disagreeing with the stories and the takes. Like, I think the government did wield 
inappropriate influence over social media posts and censorship. I do think it's a problem. Like I, I don't just, I'm not saying, I'm not like participating in stories or segments that I don't agree with and, and not and saying things that I don't believe, but it still has the thrust. Like I'll get home and I'll feel like, what did I just do? Like, what, would I, what did I just do? And what is the purpose of this? And even as I'm planning episodes, I got to say, like, I'm really struggling because, like, who the fuck do I even want to talk to anymore on Bad Faith? Like, what is the point? Who, who, who on earth do we even care to hear from anymore at this point? We all, everyone says the same shit. <laughs> you know, everyone can, is going to disappoint us in the predictable ways. And the people who we agree with, we've heard from, and we already know that we agree. So unless this is like a new show all of a sudden, where it's like, I'm just reporting on, okay, new events, the coup in, where was it? Mali? Oh, I'm in, sorry, in Niger. Niger? Niger, yeah. Okay, like, we can do those kinds of episodes. We can just cover the news as it's happening. Do deep dives on subjects. Historically, those episodes of Bad Faith have not done as well either, but never mind. If, what if do you mean, the, deep dives? Wait, yeah, what like, about the... What, what about that one that you did with um, with um, what's his name the uh, the the Nazi deprogrammer? Yeah, I mean, I I think stuff like that is interesting. But even that was in the context of a dispute that I had had with Talia on the show, and it was it was offering like a count like a kind of a debate in two parts. You know, ended up being a counterpoint to her, her on the show. And so I don't know. I can I can pick fights with people. I can have you know, liberals on, I can have people that I know I'm going to disagree with and have debates. I think that sometimes the people I'm debating with the most are people who are a little bit closer to me in belief. So, you know, I'll find something that Nathan Robinson and I disagree about, or, you know, that, that, um, Leslie and I disagree about that's, that's easy enough, but it does. It also seems like some of the feedback on those is like, I hate Nathan Robinson. I hate Leslie. Everybody hates everybody to be honest. Everybody hates everybody, which I got to say, from my perspective, makes it very difficult for me to figure out who to actually book on the show unless there were no name person who people are too, you know, um, ignorant. I don't mean like ignorant, but like they, they know so little about them that they can't possibly be mad. You know what I mean? Like, what am right. I? Well, like, help some me, some help me out. Shows are like that. I'm sorry. Like some of the some of the expert shows, like when you have an academic on. And to me, those are are the best and the deepest ones. Like when you have on a historian or uh, you know a, an anthropologist or a sociologist that's uh, you know discussing the you know the nitty gritty of that issue, and then it's educational and enlightening. I don't know how those do in numbers because I can't see your numbers, but those are the ones that leave me feeling good after I listen to them. And there's, there's value in that. And like, I feel like after those episodes, you feel better too, because, you know, the kind of, of, you know, argument and like, it can be for people that are argumentative by nature, like fun for a while, but at a certain point, it just becomes mentally exhausting. And, you know, sometimes you, you just want something a little, slower pace or something that's interesting to you um, and something that leaves your batteries feeling more charged as opposed to drain. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, mean I, like, I, yeah. there's a bunch of, like a bunch of us definitely have guests we can suggest for, 
for stuff like that that uh you know i've even suggested uh you know devarian baldwin who had the the best explanation of the the history of the word woke i've ever heard and the origin and development um you know there's uh like there's all kinds of of great guests out there that not enough people frankly are are paying attention to or listening to that have great things to say and you know nobody can uh, you know, kind of probe the details of, of what they have to offer and translate it to a wider audience the way you can. I appreciate I appreciate you saying that. I don't know. I think I, I, I don't know if I'm just having like a like a cyclical frustration, but I don't think that it is because I actually, you know, I came I came into this week feeling great. I I just had the most relaxing time off that I've had in a really long time. And I really feel recharged but my feelings about my utility in this space haven't changed. I'm not tired in this moment. I am confused. I don't feel, I used to feel like I, we used to like do an episode of bad faith. And then when producer Ben would get the cut back, I would like listen to the whole episode at normal speed, like enjoying it. And going back over, oh, like that was a funny moment, and oh, that was a good point. And I used to, I used to have, I used to listen because I liked it so much. And I, and I would like this is a podcast I would listen to. And these days, like I basically stopped even listening back to the episodes like months ago. And to the extent that there's like a controversial episode, or I've made a specific instruction about you know an edit, I'll listen at like double, triple speed just to check up on it and then keep it pushing. And I, I have to ask myself, like, what if I ask myself, what would make it so that I would want to listen regularly, like me listen to my own podcast again? Um, one, I like I honestly, in all honesty, I miss having a co-host. I miss not having to book someone for every episode. You know, I miss like, oh, if someone cancels, fine. Like we didn't have an episode last Monday because we had a cancellation. And that puts my producer in a bad situation because he has allotted time for this that he's not doing other projects he has an other job and it it makes it so that like i either could scramble while on vacation for another guest or just say like fuck it and you know i said fuck it but like i'm if i had a co-host and we can just talk you know and honestly i often found more interesting conversations when it's just me and a co-host because me and a co-host you know when, when it's me and katie i know i can throw whatever at katie and she'll roll with the punches and she's familiar with the news and she'll yes and me and we can have a conversation. If I have some random guest and I say, well, did you hear this happen? They're going to go, no, I'm an expert in uh, the arms race. I'm, I'm an expert in nuclear uh, nuclear war and I don't, I, I didn't see the thing about Cardi B throwing her microphone. Please stop asking me about this. Wait, Cardi you, B you know? microphone? You know, there's been this bait of fans throwing objects at performers on stage. Um, oh, yeah, and it's, yeah escalated and it's dangerous for performers cardi someone threw something i think a drink at cardi and she uh aimed her microphone and pelted it back and apparently had very good aim and got the person another person is suing cardi b for assault oh i love cardi like that is that is classic too yeah yeah like i <laughs> she cracks me up Somebody but, in the chat yeah. referred to Katie Halper as Waspy, and I gotta say, LOL. What? <laughs> Do we know what Waspy means? 
white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. <laughs> Don't do it. Do that to our Jewish queen. <laughs> Katie is not a wasp. I don't think that's no, the word we're looking not. for. She's a member of tribe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know the I know the feeling. Like you know, like I would never have done you know because we were doing that call-in show for a while, and I guess we technically still are once in a while, just not as regularly anymore. Yeah. But uh, you know, I would never have even started doing that thing if uh, neoliberal tears hadn't been like, no, we'll do a show together. It'll be fine. And like. Most of them, like the, at least the, the first few, was mostly just us talking to each other. Yeah. And sometimes that's pretty much all it still is. And that it makes a difference. And like that, that kind of, of back and forth dialogue, uh, it is a lot on your shoulders, especially when you are doing uh, the rising, um, you know, every, pretty much every yeah. weekday. It's a lot. I also, I like being able to like, not know stuff and work it through with someone else. I don't like this posture that people seem to be hungering for where you pretend to be the expert. And it's all about, there's so much self-referential stuff happening with hosts. Like, I told you guys, I told you this was going to happen. Didn't I tell you? I'm in the right. You know, and I mean, everybody does that from time to time. I certainly took a victory lap over force of vote, right, in January with the Republicans. But we all did. But like, it's... I don't know. It starts to feel like I don't know what's sitting so uneasy easy with me with some of this stuff. Like I really enjoy the safe. When, when I started my first podcast with Joe, with my with my best friend with Sp- Spody, I mean, first of all, nobody was listening to it, right? <laughs> so we felt really comfortable with our twenty listeners just being really frank and open with each other about our relative ignorance. Also, neither of us was out here in the world positioning ourselves as experts, political or otherwise. So there wasn't the same, <clears throat> excuse me, the same pressure to like n- be knowledgeable, come with pre-baked in knowledge. And I've, I've talked to him recently. I was like, Joe, would you ever come back and like podcast with me? And he's like, well, you've, you've gone too far. Like you've become too knowledgeable about politics. And I would feel like an ignoramus like sitting next to you. And I'm like, well, no, I don't think that, I don't think that people have those expectations of you because you're not in the space, but I do feel those expectations and I do feel, you know, it does feel like I have to just know everything coming into every episode. Whereas I do miss the, the ability to kind of go back and forth with a, another co-host who maybe has different areas of expertise than I do, different vulnerabilities and weaknesses than I have. And together we're able to kind of live Google and fact check each other and like work it through. And I feel like that's what we need more of. Like, well, am I right about that? Okay, well, let's check that. And is that consistent? And who's saying this about what? Rather than I've, like, marshaled facts and I'm making an argument. And that's good, too. Like, a radar style, I've marshaled. Okay, I was that me or you that, that just cut out? Uh-oh, the man got the brie because she knows too much. Release her.
You back? No, I hear nothing. Yeah, I, I've got nothing. No audio from Bree. What do you want me to talk about? I don't know everything either. Hello? Hello. Oh, oh there, I don't know what back. happened. Hallelujah. Sorry, I hope I wasn't prattling on too long on silent. Yeah, I hope that too, because I didn't want to miss anything good. It's um, I, like I don't want to like I've been up here for a while and I, I didn't want to monopolize the, the stage when all my buddies are in line to, to talk to you. But, um, you know, like, honestly, like I I'm glad you're 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 getting some of this out there and maybe uh, hopefully, um, you know, starting to sort through some of it. And maybe when you when it gets a little clearer in your head, uh, some decisions on how to move forward, because, you know, you, you can't sustain something you're unhappy with like you, you've got to find a way to 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 write the, the equilibrium to restore the equilibrium rather yeah yeah i'll figure it out I'm sorry, i don't mean way. to like use you guys as my therapist tonight <laughs> no we want you to like this like this is why this is why i missed those call-ins so much because you're able to to air things like this ideas that don't have to go anywhere and and we love that too well, I appreciate that, Jonathan, and I always, I always appreciate you and all of your commentary and your recommendations. Um, you have actually clued me into some of my favorite all-time guests, so please do um, flag uh, the guest about wokeness for me again. That sounds like a good idea, something a little bit that's outside of electoralism so we can reset from the horse race a bit would be nice. No problem. I'll send it to your Twitter DM. If you, do you check those still? Yeah, my Twitter DM is my most reliable form of communication. My mom used to start DMing me if she wants me to return her calls. <laughs> yeah, I did tell you I fixed my horoscope. I found my my birth time for my birth certificate. Ooh, what did you learn? Uh, that I was that my mother's memory was faulty, and I was born at one thirty in the afternoon. So, what's your full chart? Uh, the rising sign. Oh, I'd have to look it up on CoStar. Let me see. <laughs> You said the rising sign was so important, and the description that it had was, I thought, very accurate. Ah. Let's see. Is that so? Let's see. Chart. Okay. Sun and Capricorn. Moon and Aries. Is that the rising one, or is is it the ascendant? Uh, Moon is moon. Um, So Coaster will tell you what each... Yeah, you're moving. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Um, so your moon rules your emotions, moods, and feelings. This is likely the sign you most think of yourself as, since it reflects your personality when you're alone or deeply comfortable. Aries, moon is in Aries. Interesting. Isn't that, isn't that the god of war? Yeah, yes, but you don't have to be so literal about it. Aries are um, assertive, independent, charming, uh, competitive. Um, I love an Aries. My toxic trait is that I have dated every Aries in the tri-state area. <laughs> um, 
and it's not necessarily a good thing for me, but it is my toxic trait. They're fire signs like I am Leo, so I find them to be very relatable, and they tend to sparkle, and um, we have kind of like leadership vibes. Uh, they can be a little on the blunt side, and people can find them to be aggressive because they don't always like sugarcoat everything. Um, well, you know, I've, I've definitely been accused of that. <laughs> Ascendant is in Gemini. That's the one that, that I needed to know my birth time for. Oh, interesting. That's why you like communication, perhaps. Your ascendant is the mask you present to people. It can be seen in your personal style and how you come off to people when you first meet. So, that's interesting. So, that was the one that, was the one that I had to check my birth time for and that I didn't have the last time when I thought my horoscope was broken. <laughs> but now I have it. Well, I'm glad you have the full... I just saw... Maybe I'll retweet it. I just saw a tweet where someone took... Um, did like a Barbie horoscope chart thing and they had like a triangle, you know, with three points. I mean, obviously it's a triangle has three points. And at the top, the apex of the triangle was my job is beach. At the other corner, it's she called me a fascist, but I don't control the railways or flow of commerce. And on the other corner is, do you guys ever think about dying? And all of the um, signs are laid out on the triangle about like which kind of Barbie they're most like. Those are all quotes from the movie, obviously. And Leo is at the very top next to my job is beach because we're dumb bimbos. <laughs> we're fun-loving, hedonistic uh, bimbos, apparently. That translates into your taste in movies. <laughs> sure. Sure, I'll take that. But, you know, I, like, I, I definitely learned all I, all I need to know about Barbie from you guys, and I decided instead of going to Barbie to uh, just rewatch my DVD illegally blonde. You like, honestly, I know it's like taxing for me to keep saying that when you guys weren't at the same drive through I was in, in Wellfleet. But if you are, if you have the ability to just go see Barbie and then watch Lily blonde, when you get home, I cannot stress enough how revealing a pairing that is and how, how much it exposes what the Barbie movie could have been. Like, like, I know that we've all seen Legally Blonde, but, like, watch it again right after you watch Barbie. And you can it's not just, like, the feminism stuff and the, the movie. It's also comparing, like, early aughts, 90s plotting and pacing and scene construction and how seamless and tight Legally Blonde feels to the sprawling, aimless Barbie and so many modern movies that are, like, a series of SNL sketches and not, like, a tight, edited plot where every scene has a purpose and ends when it's supposed to. It doesn't like trail off awkwardly like it's a sketch. Like we we have come. There's a reason why those movies from the 90s and early aughts are so satisfying. Well, that one in particular. But yeah, it's just a great film. Snap. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a really it's a really great film. Anyway, I won't I won't drag it on, Jonathan. I will move on to the line, which has gotten longer. So I'm going to start. I'm going to go back to doing one from the front, Sorry, one from guys. somewhere else in the queue. No, no worries. Thank right. you, Jonathan. Keep the faith. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so I did two from the front, so I'm going to jump into the middle and go to Melissa. What's on your mind tonight, Melissa? Oh, did I catch you unawares? Oh, I caught Melissa off guard. Melissa, if you get back in the queue, I will come back to you at a later juncture 
I'm going to go to Fantomas Fanto. What's on your mind tonight, Fantomas? Yes, uh, good evening. Good evening. So, so my, my thing is is that uh, if, if you do get tired, if you get a little bit tired of politics, I could see you veering into pop culture and politics more so. Um, there's a lot going on in terms of politics. You know, you have the obviously the Aldean thing with the country, but there's there's other things like the, the, the fascinating trial with Young Thug in Atlanta that's been going on for about a year now. What's going on with Young Thug? So Young Thug, right now in particular, they're, they have him on a RICO act of his whole, basically his whole entire roster label because they were affiliated with this gang in Atlanta called YSL. Okay. And they're basically getting him on lyrics and, uh, and, and, and affiliations of uh, phone calls. And just, they've been going through a year just, just, uh, just trying to get the, the jury in, in, uh, in position. And it's, it's been very difficult because a lot of people are just, uh, it's a very soap opera type of trial. And there's, there's lots to cover in terms of, you know, Atlanta and the, uh, the world and, and, uh, and because it's on the law and uh, the, the the law TV channel on YouTube, it's uh, it's interesting to watch. Okay, maybe I'll check that out. Robbie loves talking about Rico overreach, so maybe that's something we could talk about on the Hill too. I would. Here's the other thing that's really interesting too. You know, I I just found out about this recently, but they've been deleting a lot of mixtapes on um, on Spotify and Apple, not because of sample clearances and stuff like that. But because people are basically snitching on themselves. Oh, really? Because of gangs and uh, murders. And, and it's becoming uh, even more true in the New York drill scene as well. It's, it's boiling over in terms of a lot of, um, you know, this is a big deal, especially uh, locking up a lot of different uh, uh, rappers. This is, is almost become like a uh, in style thing to do. But I think this uh, case, I, I think they uh, re, they join up again on August 11th, and it's probably going to be another six months or seven months before they start. And again, we're already a year into this trial. Okay, that's interesting. I like this. Look, I'm always trying to figure out stories that are good for rising that don't involve me having to talk about how much everyone on there hates trans people or <laughs> something else that I just prefer not to talk about. So let me put this in the slack right now. Let me Well, well I'll tell you something also. They just, this, they wanted to admit some evidence out of a trial because uh, they had on the record that one of the, uh, the rappers was sacrificing a goat for a sacrifice for a ritual. So Wait. it's, it's, what, why did why was it the first thing that came up when I googled Young Thug trial? Young Thug attorneys want to throw out evidence of goat sacrifice in Rico trial. What on earth? Okay, yeah, we got to get into this. All right, thanks for flagging that. Yeah, no problem. I'm gonna let people go on, but Bree, I would just say there's plenty of stories to look at. Um, to me, it's surprising to me that a lot of people aren't covering the. Uh, the Young Thug trial, because like I said, there's lots of politics involved. One other thing I'll say before I, before I go, one of the reasons why they have so many people in this trial is they use this device called the Stingray. And basically what they did was they sapped all their phone calls. It's like a vacuum media <laughs> device. And it, it got all the calls from all the prisons, 
uh, all their all their all their phone lines, everything in contact of that. So that's why they have so much evidence a lot against them. YSL right now and why it's taking. Oh, so there's an, an interesting kind of uh, limits of surveillancey sort of uh, question. Yeah, you, you, if you go on uh, DJ Vlad's YouTube channel, there's an attorney talking about it, and it'll give you it gives you like a brisk kind of like rundown, very very fast, like seven or eight minutes, and he goes into the particulars, so you don't have to weed through like paragraph after paragraph like most people are doing. So, yeah, I would definitely look into that. Okay, DJ Vlad, got it. Thanks so much. All right, no problem. All right, keep the faith. All right. BK, how's it going? Hey, Supreme Leader. Um, Stop. <laughs> I know it doesn't feel that way because, like, like partly, it, like, I've been like, oh, man, I got to start working. Okay, ro- like, it's been a little over a year since I discovered you, and I felt I felt like really quickly, like just watching your podcast improved my like thinking. Like I just felt I was smarter, like right away. Like just okay. it's one it's one of the things that makes me feel like propaganda is evil in a way that we don't even appreciate because it, it makes us all dumber and less connected. Um, well, I, I appreciate you saying that, BK. And especially like trying to call in and connect about like issues. It, it really made me like see how how much more like work I had to do on my communication skills. And when I heard that um, like Colin might be going away, I was like, all right, I'm going to start trying to hang out on Colin and work on my communication and debate skills. And it was, it's been like really humbling the last three weeks because like I've done so much like armchair quarterback, you know, or like Monday morning quarterbacking, like especially with the trans episodes, like I did like judging Esperanza, the way I did feels really like smug and awful now. Um, mm. did, did you, did you, were you judgmental of Esperanza? I don't remember. Well, I did feel like, Oh, why did you show up unprepared to talk about the first amendment? Kind of, oh. you know, or like, why are you being so, you know, defensive when uh, Kim Iverson is being a huge jerk? You know? <laughs> and then I find myself in conversations where people are like, well, social contagion. And then I just start like, you know, losing it. And, um, so I, I did want to, like, it made me think about the story you've told about how you got really triggered when you would get into arguments in law school, um, especially with, like, other right-wing people, but that, like, over the years, you, you like, learned how to not do that. So I was Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes more <laughs> successfully than others. I guess it's just practice, so I'll skip past that really quick. But also I've been thinking about, um, like you said at the beginning of the episode, like, stories do seem to... Uh, reveal a lot more and so that I've also been thinking about you know because there's a lot of really inspirational people in the leftist space um, who do this like citizen journalism you know they didn't necessarily go to journalism school and that actually seems to be like a big plus because mm-hmm. like like I met a journalist at a poker table a couple months ago and brought up Julian Assange and he was like well I don't steal things <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and he's the editor of the paper in Walla Walla um yeah. And then I, like, tried to, like, get into him with it about it. And I was like, look at this video. He says this stuff about, you know. And he was like, we just got out of Afghanistan. Like, did it? Um, so even though it's kind of like, it seems like a Sisyphusian effort or whatever. Because, you know, it's like everyone's so propagandized. Even all the journalists. It does mm-hmm. feel like. But, you know, it's like, what a, it seems like a valiant effort. And, the like, oddly, the Jonathans have been um, really inspirational also. Like, it's mm-hmm. it, 
it's really terrifying to try to get into an argument, especially when people are going to be like, well, what about this? And like, if you, you know, like Nathan Robinson said on your last episode with him, like, if you don't have answers prepared, then you're going to make your position look worse. You're going to do yourself and what you're arguing for a disservice. And like, sometimes I'll be in a call space getting into an argument and it really quickly comes down to like, like the problem is private property, <laughs> like private, mm. the way that ownership works the way that hierarchy is structured around private property and it seems like it always kind of comes back to that but it's very very difficult like you know I didn't go to business school but every time I call in one of the Jonathans because I'll like dm them on this app and I'll be like hey if you're free come through this room we're arguing about property and like Jonathan Cadman has an answer for everything every time Jonathan Cadman is brilliant (laughs) I honestly don't understand where Jonathan Cadman finds the time to know all the things he knows and learn all the things he learns. He must not be watching every season of every show that comes out on trash television the way I am. And kudos to him. <laughs> yeah. That is it. One diligent man. But those dating shows have to be watched for like sanity. <laughs> and- it's research, goddammit. <laughs> yeah, and also Jonathan and I both agree that Rising has been amazing lately. Um, and the conversations that happen on Rising, they, they're a lot more like the conversations that a lot of us have in real life with real life people. Um, and like, like a lot of the conversations, like, especially in like the smaller call-in rooms, like I've gotten really triggered and gotten into some like yelling conversations where I've been like, Brie never told anyone to vote for Marianne Williamson and da, da, da. And then like the other adults in my household afterward who like have heard the whole thing are just like, what was that argument about? Like, it's completely incomprehensible mm-hmm. because it's so in group. Mm-hmm. Like what happens on rising, I think is for the most part comprehensible to anyone who like jumps in. And I, I think it's also like, like for an example, like one thing that's going on, that's been going on like in my partner's life for many months is, um, there's this unhoused dude who um, feels safe out front of my partner's salon. Mm-hmm. And the salon next door, the business next door is like, um, I'm call- you know, I'm going to call the cops. But then it's like he's out in front of my partner's salon. So then it's like the guy next door is like, can you please call the cops on this guy? And my partner's like, well, he's not doing anything. He's just existing. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, so the next door called the landlord and the landlord is like, you have to call the cops on this guy. Um, and also if you keep giving them water, I have one video that you gave him water. That's against you're You're not allowed to do that. He said it was against the law to give people water. What is this? Our Southern border. It's against the loop. Like if you're, you're not allowed to just like be like taking care. of. <laughs> and so what my partner did was like, okay, well I'm only responsible for six inches out and so they bought some like potted plants that were six inches in circumference to be like, he's not even on my, I'm not even, this isn't, you know, I just think it, it's like this story of a thing where like what's really going on here is how private property functions. Mm. Um, and also another really interesting thing that happened was like one of the only other like people in the community who really cares and like shows up with water and a hug for this guy, even though, you know, he smells bad. It's uncomfortable. Is mm-hmm. this like super Christian person. Um, and the salon is like a radical queer situation, you know, mm-hmm. but like they're working together to try to help this guy. 
Uh, but then one day they did kind of get into it about gender politics. And my partner was like, I'm just going to try to explain gender. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, don't do it. Brie took a year convincing me that that's not the way about it. Because what's going to happen is you're going to be like, the history of sexuality. And then she's just going to think that we've all, that we're all in a gender cult. Like, it'll be incom- incomprehensible. And then yeah, it's, <laughs> it's so, t- I mean, the real world is such a different place than the internet in terms of, like, also, we're making decisions. Yeah. I think on the internet, there's this, you know, you know, you're being observed in your, and how much your kind of tolerance or tolerance isn't the right word, but how your willingness to show some grace to someone who you disagree with, even if they don't deserve it, might be interpreted as not caring about their bigotry or, allowing their, you know, somehow endorsing their bigotry. And it does, I think, lead us to behave differently in like these kind of public online spaces versus these intimate one-on-one conversations where we might feel, and I, I, I've been in this, I've talked about it on the show. I've been in scenarios where someone had said something bigoted to me, not about me per se, but about another group and, you know, figuring out how to get them to where they need to be, where I'd like them to be at least without, it you know just alienating all the all the broader work we've been doing in the course of a conversation, or yeah. or just not convincing them you know coming coming being like no you're wrong and you're a bigot in a way that's not going to actually convince them even if it makes me feel good, and that line is diff it's like a difficult it's a difficult balancing act and it's down to individual comfort, and I'm going to have a lot more patience with someone who is bigoted about someone who's not me, you know versus if I'm the target of the bigotry. You know, the person who's like calling me the N word versus the person who is like, uh, you know, I hate gay people. Well, you know, (laughs) you know, and and that that is playing a role in it. So I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and tell anybody how it's supposed to be done. But, you know, my experience has been that those real life situations are so different than the than the Internet. And I have had what I believe are successes in those spaces. And I don't know, I. I, I feel a little reluctant to be telling anybody to teach anybody about how to go about that sort of thing. But the people who knock on so many doors during election cycles and such, I'll be the first ones to tell you that, you know, human contact and a willingness just to be there and for someone to put their eyes on you and to see, Oh, you're gay and you're nice. You're trans and you're nice. You're black and you're nice. You're an immigrant and you're nice. Like maybe this will affect how I think of these groups going forward is so much more transformative than, you know, dunking on folks online. I don't know. Yeah. Or or being right. Like, yeah. If someone could tell me something and be totally correct, but if they're a huge jerk about it, all I'm going to remember is that they're a jerk. Yeah. Um, That's the truth. Yeah. yeah, When you were, um, when you were in that Twitter thing about um, Dylan Mulvaney just saying, well, she seems nice. And then everyone was, Oh my God. crazy it was and it was really revealing and it was uh what's the word it, it was kind of therapeutic like oh yeah like remember why they're there and remember that like the the tone of an argument like what we're saying you know the tone is kind of like it's for the people who are just going to show up to be transphobic anytime you know anything that sounds like the word trans is happening like obviously like the tone isn't going to matter for them but that's just like a very small like for everyone watching, 
they're going to be like, oh, one person seems nice and the other person seems like a triggered jerk. Yeah. Like, that's all they're going to see. Um, and so I'm, like, trying to remember that. Uh, but uh, the, the – oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Like, the thing with debate, too, is, like, well, what if something comes up and I just don't have to – like, it's because I feel like I'm a pacifist and then really quickly people are going to be like, but, oh, really, you're fast, pacifist? Well, did you know that Gandhi had violent farts? And like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It'll be like, well, don't you know that Gandhi was, vi- he had violence too. So like, so now pacifism stupid, right? Like, it, there's just, so, well, I don't know how to contend with that. Like, people just come up with stuff that you don't, and so I get really overwhelmed, but, like... I Wait, did you say Gandhi has violent farts? I mean, uh, you know, yeah, I was making a joke, but... Okay, I just want to make sure, because then it went on kind of seriously, and I'm, like, <laughs> laughing, and I'm, like, oh, he did say farts, right, and not, like, parts or something that I shouldn't be laughing at, because there really was some problem, like, more than the obvious problems with Gandhi. Okay, just, just checking. <laughs> No, it was just that was an argument I got into with someone the other day. They were like, oh, "Oh, you're a pacifist. Hold on." And then it was like they came back with evidence of like a violent thought that Gandhi had one time, mm-hmm. and it was like proof that pacifism is like null and void or whatever. Um, but there, so there've been a lot of points where I felt like, okay, well, you just said something that I have no response to. Like someone on Colin said, "Do you feel like all this push toward, you know, like transness and hormones?" is just a push toward transhumanism. And I like had no response, but I do feel like the fact that I was nice. Wait, by transhumanism, they're going back to this idea that uh, there's somebody's, there's a litter box in somebody's elementary school somewhere because a kid thinks they're a cat. Yeah. And that it's like a, we're being slowly propagandized into like taking Elon Musk's chips is what she was proposing. It wasn't a super solid argument, I don't think. Yeah, but, sure. <laughs> but I still didn't know how to, like, respond to it, you know, because it's hard to prove a negative. Um, yeah. I, I I mean, that's where I do think that some of that um, niceness comes in. Because, like, you know, I'm of a certain age. And some of the stuff that happens on TikTok, I find to be cringe because I'm an elder millennial. Including some of the Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney like, you know, chipper talking into camera, like, stuff. Like, it's cringe in the way that a lot of stuff the kids are doing is cringe to me. But, like, in a video where she's clearly wrestling with a very public hard time she's been having with a great deal of grace and, like, not lashing out at all, but just saying lovely, warm, supportive things, like, that's how you win, like, Oh, hi, I'm a person, and, you know, I just want everybody to be happy and get along and mind their own business. Like, you can't argue with that. And sometimes I just think that's what it, that's what it's going to boil down to. Like, it's, it's hard. Like, we talked about the RFK Jr., um, if, uh, 88, uh, 1488 stuff. You know, you saw that, um, you saw that tweet. You see that tweet? Yeah. And, you know, Robbie and I had a difference of opinion on whether or not, like, let's say that he didn't tweet it. Let's say that a, a staff tweeted or whatever. It still seems the case to be the case that like Nazi stuff is sneaking in somehow to all of these campaigns at a rate that seems unusual and like it's on the rise. And that's concerning. And Robbie was like, well, maybe he didn't even do it. And I don't even know if empirically you can say there's more of this stuff. And look, I, I think I'm, I'm legitimately like freaked out by how mainstreamed a lot of this right-wing stuff has gotten over the last five to ten years. 
And I do think that, I don't mean to minimize it, like that is definitely happening. But I also think we're about to see a backlash where the Republicans thought they won the culture war, just like liberals thought they had won the culture war 10 years ago. And all of this weird Nazi shit that is like not normie is going to cause everybody to retract away from the creeps like Ron DeSantis. And there's going to be a reorientation and the people who seem nice and normal are going to win again. And so, like, yeah, I think ultimately the swings are driven by the fact that people stop being normal (laughs) and nobody wants nobody wants this freak DeSantis stuff. People just want to be nice. People just want to be nice and supportive and warm and to mind their own business. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I I also just really quickly want to say, like. I, I once saw a comic like deal with hecklers well, and I was outside smoking a cigarette after I was like, how'd you do that? And he said, oh, the heckler is never the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> um, and he was like, I just remember that and it's fine. And so sometimes like I think about like, like I see the comments, especially on the Mary Gallants and stuff. And it, yeah. It's weird. Like, you know, like, we need a community and we need to organize, but once we do get a little bit of organization and community going, it's really hard to like keep out the weird toxic, like, all right, well now let's all find a person to hate on and feel together by hating on them together all the time. Yeah. And say things like, well, she obviously doesn't uh, support Cornell West, even though three of her last four episodes were about Cornell West. Like I find myself in these arguments and I'm like, why is this happening? But also like we need to organize and like, um, I, I know like you want to just like roll your eyes about, and I know I've been on a while, but I'm just going to say this real quick. Like there's someone I met uh, here in Colin that's got, she's a whistleblower and I've only begun to like get my arms around like the facts of the case, but she's in this dispute with HUD and there's definitely like, corruption and misappropriation of funds um and it feels like all right this if we're all a bunch of organizers maybe a couple of us should be able to get a you know organize around this and do some citizen journalism so i'm just Mm -hmm. gonna say that i'm working on it (laughs) that i'm you know a couple that uh i'm gonna try to do some organizing and uh hopefully i'll check back in with you let you know how it goes has she reached out at all to any people who do that kind of reporting like uh like a Ken Klippenstein or intercepty sort of a person who could dig in, maybe help amplify. I think, I think she's reached out to, I know she's talking, George Santos is her congressperson and I huh. talked to like the mayor, the deputy mayor, like, and she's got recordings of a lot. She's been doing a really good job, like putting on, keeping all the information together, keeping everything documented. Lee um, Fong might also be, I mean, I know we have differences of opinion, no, but he might yeah. also be a good person for that. I'm not saying like, yeah, she's tried them and it's, but yeah, we're, we're going to, I'll definitely. Follow. Well, follow up. Let me know if you need any help getting in touch with folks. Thank you so much. You're the best. Yeah, of course. Thanks for calling in BK. Keep the faith. You too. You too. Uh, let's go to JLo Cutie Pie. Check out that name. Hey, where'd you go, JLo? I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, loud and clear. What's on your mind tonight, Cutie Pie? Oh, man. A uh, whole bunch of stuff, Bree. Uh, I think, I think the most interesting thing recently is a. Uh, I bought a rifle. I bought an AR five five six. It's the same uh, style like AR fifteen rifle that's uh, very popular in the United States. And uh, 
it's been a lot of fun. It's been real cool. I've been going out to the range and been hanging out with people and stuff. But one bad thing did happen. Um, some person who I don't know found out about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became like a, uh, it became like this whole big deal. And suddenly, like, the police showed up at my house. And uh, the, I, I guess people thought I was going to shoot the place up. And I thought it was uh, insane, right? It didn't make any sense to me. And um, I thought it was... Hey, sorry, I got to call and you cut out for a second. You said it didn't make any sense to you? Um, it didn't make... Yeah, it didn't make any sense to me, given given that, you know, my history. Um, I'm well-known in the community. I've been here 13 years. I've got a good job. Um, I'm, I have a lot of people I'm in contact with. Um, you know, and I live in Florida. And so, like, owning rifles and guns and stuff here is no big deal. But because it's that AR-556, which is an AR-15-style rifle, um, that caused people who I don't know, who literally do not know me, random people found out about it. And it it became this, blew up into this huge deal. And um, it, uh, like I, for me, it, it, the police came to my house for like a, a wellness check. And, you know, I was very calm and I explained everything to them. You know, I have all the stuff stored properly and everything like that. Um, and, you know, I'm Hispanic, so every a lot, most of the men in my family have uh, guns. In fact, uh, I was in Miami uh, recently, and I was uh, my cousin's police officer. And so I was looking at his AR-style rifles, and, you know, he's got, like, a shotgun and stuff for the house. Um, and, yeah, I, I think part of it is just the environment that we're in. Uh, Florida just passed a um, uh, permitless concealed carry. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are kind of like a little people are on edge, but it just it just doesn't really make sense to me too much just because we live in Florida. Everybody around here has firearms. Um, I'm an adult. Um, you know, I have the legal licenses and everything to own uh, guns. But, um, you know, people found out and they heard AR and they got scared. And I think part of what, what it kind of showed me is, is like um, in the the American left that we call the left, it's not the the neoliberal left, the one that doesn't uh, look like the international left. Uh, that, within the United States, I just, those people are so reactionary. That's what I basically saw. Um, I feel like within our movement, um, the message, especially among minorities like myself, um, that are leftists has been to uh, arm yourselves but if you do like you know do it legally and that kind of thing and mm-hmm. don't like crazy paramilitary training and stupid shit like that which is illegal but um you know there is a i don't know i as as i've lived in florida my whole life i'm 31 now um there's been a lot of gun violence around me and especially the neighborhood i live in now or, or the, it's the it's the the actual ghetto of the city you know i hear a lot of gunfire so it makes sense for me to have a, I have a little nine millimeter for personal protection and then I have the sports rifle for fun shooting. But uh, I- can I ask a little, uh, what do you, what do you make of the AR 15 having been used in so many mass shootings and the focus, you know, the political focus being on that one gun as a, as a consequence, you know, how do you balance your feeling that you can be a responsible gun owner with that particular kind of gun 
Um, uh, I know that there's, I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding the word semi-automatic because I know there's a whole discourse about whether it really is or isn't. And the gun experts always push back, but a gun that can fire a lot of rounds in a short time, whatever you call that. Oh, oh I see what you're saying. Yeah, like, yeah. how do you, how do you like, as someone who I presume like most people hate mass shootings and, you know, hate how much harm can be inflicted in a short amount of time with a legal firearm. Like, how do you wrestle, you know, your choice with the, with the availability of that particular gun and your choice to avail yourself of the availability of that particular gun versus your, um, the, 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 the choice of so many bad actors to use that gun in these mass shootings. And, you know, what do you think of people who say, well, let's ban that particular gun as long as you can still buy other kinds of guns, then it's not a, a significant infringement of one's rights. The whole argument um, is I think it's all totally fraught. I mean I think the fact that we have like 400 million guns or 300 million people is the problem. But I don't see – you know, we're not ending war, and guns are still being manufactured and produced. And these AR platforms that you're talking about are the most popular sports rifles in America, and mm. everybody has them. In fact, uh, I have some friends in town, uh, some black friends in fact. Mm -hmm. that have lots of these rifles and i'm sure within my own neighborhood because of where i live i'm sure a lot of other people have them as well so they're extremely common um and most people who do avail themselves of these sorts of rifles uh you know they get them and they store them correctly and they go out to the range um sometimes with their friends and sometimes with their families and they you know they have fun uh target shooting and stuff like that i mm -hmm. mean that's what i do uh you can put you can, you know, it's a, a 5.56 style rifle, which is very powerful round, uses the same round they use over in Ukraine and the NATO round. Uh, it can also be, uh, you know, given a, a bolt that allows it to fire 22. And so you can use that for target shooting and stuff like that. So it's just like a fun sports rifle. And it, they're very, very, very common. What I think a lot mm. of people on the neoliberal left don't understand is just how many people have them and how common they are. And the AR-15 is an entry-level like rifle the mm -hmm. ar 556s uh you can get um a lot of really powerful 556 style rifles 308s and various other things i mean the there's so many guns everywhere the popularity i think for kids has to do with the you know the media and people saying it but i think focusing on the ar15 or the ar15 style platforms doesn't just doesn't it doesn't make any sense when stacked up against how many people have them uh how popular they are they're just kind of entry level and you can you know upgrade them and stuff but most people who have guns what i have found within the gun community is most people who have guns um they have these a lot of them have these five five six rifles and none of them are i'm not really worried about other people mm -hmm. that's an interesting perspective i guess i i didn't have a sense i don't have a sense of how common they are i, I do hear gun owners saying that the focus on that particular gun is misplaced um, for for other reasons, I guess, but I appreciate you um, calling in and giving some perspective. Yeah, I would just say that um, the one, you know, it's I sense sexism. I think there's concern over my being, you know, a young man and owning like this sort of rifle. I think uh, there's also some racism. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends that are of a lighter skin tone, mm -hmm. they. Uh, they have guns and it's very mundane, but they're treated as like good old boys, I guess, here in the South. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, and then there's, of course, the sort of reactionary neoliberal um, 
left along with the people who are on the left like me who really do have uh, i mean serious concerns about what's going on with mass shootings and school shootings and the fact that all these you know a lot of these murders are being committed with pistols and stuff mm. uh, but but it seems to me that the focusing on one rifle is a way to for the the democrats to wax and wane poetically about an issue forever without actually doing anything about it and I don't think they can. I think it's totally fraught. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think there is something to that. And I do think there is something to what Jonathan saying in the chat about how, I mean, there's obviously, it is both true that America has a, just an overwhelmingly disproportionate volume of guns in circulation, and also that there's something cultural that's driven that in the first place, and that won't go away just because you get rid of the guns. Yeah, so I, anyway, this has been elucidating. I appreciate you calling in, Jayla. Yeah, just one last thing. One sure. Last thing. I just to say, uh, the Green Party, the Cornell Rest, uh, is running to be a candidate for. Uh, I believe their position on guns is they want increased background checks, and by that they mean they want they want people who are buying guns at the point of sale at places like Bass Pro Shop or whatever to uh, to be thoroughly. Uh, looked at to make sure that you know they're not disqualified from owning firearms that they haven't been uh you know uh baker acted and then uh, uh committed which would prevent them or they're not felons or things like that and and i think that that might be the only direction to go i think it would be good if we had more tabs on people yeah i mean does that did you feel like that's um I mean, you, you started by talking about how uh, kind of flummoxed you are, were by the cops coming to your house and stuff when you purchased the gun. Do you have any concern that increased background checks, et cetera, might lead to more of what happened to you happening? Or is that just a, a price you think would be, that would be willing to, you'd be willing to pay to stop mass well, shootings? Or do you think that what f flagged you to them wasn't the kind of thing that would, would be flagged under the Green Party's sort of idea of increased back background checks. Well, you know, there was a three day wait and everything. Mm -hmm. And um, that's fine. Uh, it would just be nice that if within those three days, you know, that could be used to, you know, do a thorough background check to make sure that somebody who shouldn't be purchasing a gun is purchasing a gun or somebody who's been red flagged or something like that, that needs to show up in a system, you know, but you know, that's not going to stop people from buying guns from their next door neighbor or something like that. And, you know, that's all. It's it's just very, there's so many guns. It's very fraught, Bree. There's yeah. a lot of guns. Yeah. All right. Well, look, thanks again for calling in, J-Lo. Yeah, thank you. All right, keep the faith. Will do. Neoliberal tears as I live and breathe. What's on your mind tonight? Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> can you hear Okay. <laughs> Loud and clear. Bestie, I'm so excited to speak to you. You know, you're my life, my joy, my life, my spirit. And you know, the entire left, you know, last remaining hope for humanity. And we are liberal. so grateful. By the way, I'm a little tipsy. So I'm oh, are you? <laughs> you and Jonathan are so funny that, like, people in my life, like, joke, like, Oh, you know, how's, how's Jonathan Cadman doing? How's neoliberal tears? Cause they see you on Twitter and they're like, like secretly my friends are like, Oh, I see your new best, your new bestie. 
<laughs> his neoliberal so tears. Funny. It's like, ah. oh my God, they think that? Yes. <laughs> um, it's so funny because like, obviously you're my hero, but like, I don't always telegraph it. Uh, but like, it's so funny because like, I mean, I don't even feel like, I mean, the reason I opened Twitter in the first place was trying to like find my voice and stuff. Cause I was like mm. in a really like dead end cubicle job that mm. was awful. Um, and I had like a politics side that was kind of spicy. By the way, how spicy can I get in this little call in? Um, give me from one to spicy ten. as you want to be. How can I, how spicy can I get? There's no censorship oh God, here, my friend. So much to say about RFK. Oh, say it. I definitely hear what you have to say. <laughs> oh, Wait. my God. Okay, so first of all, I posted right now the link to your amazing, amazing rising interview with Kennedy, um, which I feel like a lot of people missed. Am I wrong about that? that well, neoliberal no tears. This is part of why I'm so frustrated. Because you drilled him on Palestine. You drilled. Uh, I, I mean, I get it. Yeah. I feel you. Tell me. This is, this is part of why I'm so frustrated with the left is that I, you know, look, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with being in the role well, to get like. I am the left. So you have to. <laughs> sorry. The establishment left. <laughs> but like, I, I'm comfortable with if my role is you know, getting facts out on the table and then everybody else gets more clicks talking about the information that I got out. That's fine. So long as the information is being used, I don't, I don't need it to like, mm-hmm. I don't need the credit for it per se, but what really upsets That's me you know, I is it. I clipped it. So I, I know you're I mean, so used it. That's so productive, <laughs> but like, I, I can't help but believe I'm sorry. Like I can't help but think that if, if certain other people had done that interview it would have been everywhere, you know. I think, and it is what it is. It's, it was the same with Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's like the one of the best things about Rising is me getting access to people who I might not otherwise have access to, and getting them on the record in a way that they've never gotten on the record. But you know like, what's the I, thing about Rising interviews, they last forever. They they like they yeah. stay, and people go back to them sometimes months later. Sometimes years later, I mean, I'm, I'm, an, I'm, I'm ridiculous. So sometimes I go back to your radars from like seven months ago and I like, <laughs> well, that's because that's the last time I did a radar. I see new well. comments. I see new ones. Mm. No, yeah. they're new because they're, you're still showing up on people's for you. Like it's how it works when you're on rising. That's the thing about rising. They put you out there for, for good. You know, and your radars, your, sorry, my accent, your radars live on. Uh, when I'm drunk, it kind of comes out more. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm not funny. drunk, I'm busy. But um, <laughs> that, that, your, the work you're doing on Rising, I don't think you understand. Like, it will last. Like, you're going to look back at this 15 years from now and be like, I'm so proud of this. Like, you know, and I get that, like, we've taken a break from radars. Uh, Jonathan is very upset. Jonathan needs a new radar and wants a new radar. But I told them it's a ton of work. It's a lot of, even though that like, I told them also you can do like, you can literally do a, here's the thing. You're, you're the perfectionist that like would like try to do a radar like for a really long time. But the reality is if you do a radar in 10 minutes, it would still be fucking perfect. Like it would be, it would hit. 
You know what I mean? I know mean? I need to start doing um, them again. I so miss them. I just them. posted a radar on TikTok from uh, a few months ago about how the Democratic Party is dead. Yeah. You don't yeah. have to. You don't have to. I mean, the, the, the issue is. You want to. You know how I, I would love that. I want um, to do the, but, but the, the, the thing about. On yourself. Don't put, put a time limit. Put a time limit. The thing don't about radars is. You're a brilliant writer. You don't. Well, well, I don't have to. I mean, the way they were doing them before, like you do them the night before. The, but the thing about radars is that, like, like, like this show, it is actually the, my favorite thing to do in the abstract. But it's also so time consuming that if I'm trying to find balance in my life, it's the first thing to go. Right. And I feel the same way about Colin. You're, too, you're already a brilliant genius writer. You don't need to spend more than 15 minutes writing. Look at, I mean, okay. You Robbie, guys are so I funny. <laughs> I love Robbie, but hold on for a second. When Robbie does radar, I don't think he's, I'm sorry. It's like the kid in your class that does homework like <laughs> last minute. He's, he just, he's just trying to show up. You know, he's not trying to get an A plus. And the thing is, Brie, you're smarter than him. And but, but, but I'm going to say okay, something don't talk about Robbie. Don't talk about my guy. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. I love Robbie because <laughs> do you know that ever since you had Aaron Reed on, in studio to talk about trans rights, mm-hmm. do you understand Robbie has changed? Robbie has not been as transphobic or trans uh, afraid or trans reluctant as, as, as he was before like that changed him and that really relates to things that i see in my personal life when people meet a trans person in real life he did change like there's no you can't tell me that he's the same person before talking i mean i was thinking about this today when we were having we had a back and forth we were supposed to do a segment about inflation and like kamala harris but halfway through we got sidetracked into a debate about healthcare somehow um and what drives inflation in the healthcare sector and education and all that. And I was thinking about, we've, we've had some version of that argument many times before, but it felt a little different today. It didn't feel like, I, I don't know what it is. Like, I, maybe we just both know each other's no, position so he well. Moved, no, he moved. You moved him. Like, yeah, there's and, stuff and he I doesn't think... fight me on anymore. He just like <laughs> lets it go. He, he has been convinced. The thing is, is that people don't admit when you convince them. I, I know that personally. Like, you know, from personal experience. Like, you know, I guess now that I'm tipsy, I can admit that. <laughs> you know, I've been wrong before. Um, and Robbie has been, he doesn't push. Here's the thing. He knows that like you, 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 you are, your diversity is your strength. Like the diversity of viewpoints on, on rising is the show's strength. It's not a right wing show. I'm really pissed when people say that because it's my fucking show and it's your <laughs> fucking show. It's your show. Everything, every word that comes out of your mouth, there's no producer feeding you. Like it's you. You get to yeah. decide what the topic is. You get to decide if we don't want to talk about Jill Biden and tacos, I can redirect it to healthcare. <laughs> and that's the power, Brie. That's the fucking power that we <laughs> that we have been working so hard to get you on. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've posted in the comments. Please fire Ryan Grimm. She he is not our voice, and you need to put Brianna Joy Gray, who comes on Wednesdays, on because everybody loves her. They wait for her segments, including Alyssa Farah and Katie Halper, and they cannot wait because they can't wait to talk to Brie. Um, so. You are, you were supposed to be in that chair. And also what I was thinking about, sorry, am I going to on too long? No, you're fine. You're fine, Vesti. Keep going. 
well, what I was thinking about, isn't Rising the third party show low key? Because like you both, Robbie and you are like the next generation. You know, when Crystal and Sagar hosted it, it was when people still believed that the Democratic Party or the Republican Party could be taken over. Right. But like the establishment wings of both parties, would it be the left or would it be the right? That was the thesis. You know, would it mm-hmm. be the left that takes over the Democratic Party or the right wing populism that takes over Sagers, that takes over the party? And I think viewers have realized it's neither of those parties. And then yeah. you and Robbie come in and guess what? It's now the fucking third party show. It's the third party show. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, it It'll be interesting. Like Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, just given the the way that even 2024 is shaping out compared to 2020, where it was this, you know, is is Bernie populism versus Trump populism going to win conversation? Now it's like the, all the excitement is around RFK and uh, Cornell West, and it's it's, is a, is a, it's like a third party energy race in some weird sort of way. And I and wonder if. That's what you both need to tap into because yeah. you are tapping into just inherently because of who you both are. It's a third, it's the third party show. And I don't think we've ever had that. We've never had two presenters who were third party, but one from like a more, let's say libertarian, right? And you're like, mm-hmm. obviously the left. Mm-hmm. It's, it's exciting. It's new. It's like, it's something that I can't wait until it drops in the morning. Um, <laughs> because you know me, I'm just, uh, I'm just a troll. Um, but it really is the third party show. And I don't think you realize how many people you're giving voice to, which is why I'll do anything, anything you want to keep you on writing. <laughs> I'll do whatever. Just say it. <laughs> like kidney, two kidneys. I also need to find both of my kidneys. So it's like, it is what it is. Um, you can have it. But you're it really is what funny. people are. No, like how many Democrats are considering third parties? How many? Let's say a poll. Let's 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 ring it up. Is it seventy percent? Uh, yeah, maybe that's what I need to do in the next radar on. You are the I, future. You are supposed to be there. You are supposed to be there, especially when Cornell West. Can we just agree that we all manifested Cornell West out of this? I remember you saying on Colin, <laughs> like I know that we are building towards something, right? Like you said that, like I, we are building towards something. I just don't know really what it is. And look who shows up. He's the, he's, I don't care what yeah. anybody says on the left. He's the, he's a, like, you know, all of these people are like, but what did he say about Fauci? Like, he <laughs> is a perfect fucking candidate, Craig Pasta. Like, you piece of shit. Like, he's a perfect fucking, we couldn't have made him in a lab to be better. He's a philosopher. Liberals love him. And that's the thing. We need someone that can like actually talk to liberals, but is secretly on our side. Like we need that. And also vote for Biden. Craig Pasta. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm dying. The way you said Fauci has me crying. (laughs) Well, because it's true. I mean, pasta's just driving me fucking crazy i mean just like he pretends like all of these people who pretend rfk is like their daddy i'm as pissed as you are um hold on i'm not sure i posted the your interview on rising with rfk yet so i'm gonna post it again in case you guys missed it the new cycle moves fast that's part of the problem brie okay can i press like this brie interviewed rfk in studio and she, when I tell you she challenged him on Israel-Palestine, I know you heard, oh, he went on Jimmy Dore today. And he like, <laughs> and and here's the thing. I was actually just 
Uh, you told me I can get spicy, right? Go uh, for no, it. Okay. Now you did. So I was spam, like, I'm not the only one, but I, I was <laughs> in the Jimmy Dore chat. I was spamming free Palestine, free Palestine. <laughs> and would I, like, not just for three minutes, not five, not 10. <laughs> Like for, for like 40 minutes. And here's the thing. I looked and then all of a sudden I see a little Dorothy saying like some like probably, I don't know, in my mind, it's like a middle-aged white person in Florida being like free Palestine too. And I'm, I'm like, oh yeah, free Palestine. free Palestine. And then I keep going and everybody starts, everybody spammed their chats with like free Palestine, Zionist shill, shill, liar, liar. <laughs> wow. Because he kept talking about how Israel was justified in bombing a hospital. I mean, so I did see someone tweeting at. about that. Wait, so what did Jimmy say when he was saying that stuff? So more broadly, let's talk. Let's talk real here. You and me, Bree. Let's let's figure this out. RFK has to know that at this point he's hurting his own credibility. Like his own polling numbers yeah. are dunk. Ever since. Well, do you want some tea? Do you want some behind the scenes tea? Fuck yes. Oh my God, you know I do. So what was so interesting about when he was in studio was that, you know, he, Dennis Kucinich was with him, who is a a left hero, you know, like he was, he has taken so many unpopular stands. You know, we, we, I stand the Dennis Kucinich. I'm a Buckeye. I'm an Ohio girl, you know? And so it was interesting to see him in that context and to know that I was going to ask him a bunch of questions about Israel-Palestine, which I know that Dennis Kucinich agrees with me with and not RFK, but he's the campaign manager, not the lead, right? So like after the interview, I was wondering what the tone was going to be, given that I had asked him tough questions and questions that he didn't necessarily expect because... Guys, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. Oh my god, why am I interrupting you? I'm, that's a fucking sin. I deserve to burn in hell. Um, no, I'm so sorry, Bri. I'm just telling people that interview. Hold on, I'm gonna put the link again. Um, that interview was so good. Like you were like, you were. When, sorry, can I quote this? When you were like, RFK, when RFK was like, you know, Israel is the only. I'm not making fun of his disability freaks. Like he was like, when Israel is the only democracy and all. Oh, the gay pride parade. That's the thing. He goes from one talking point, imperialism through feminism. Like, oh, look at the Habib, look at the hijabs, and like then, oh, they had a, a pride parade, a pride parade. And you were like, who's, re-? and you was like, oh, Israel respects religions. And you were like, who's religion? Who's? <laughs> who's? Because right now, literally Israel passed a law today that says that sexual predator, like, you know, like sexual rapists that are Palestinian would get charged with a crime that's twice as, uh, like, you know, long as a Jewish rapist. Oh my God. Seriously? Yes, I'll send you the link in the DM. It's fine. I don't know. I mean, so, so yeah, it's a law that basically criminalizes rape, but, but for Palestinians, it's double the time in prison. And for oh Jewish Israelis, it's half. So what do you call that when a law is like discriminating based on ethnicity? I don't know. Is there a word for that? I'm not <laughs> sure. Anyway, you killed him. Like you bear, like you killed it. And as someone who's from that area and is so, you know how passionate I am about this and how yeah, and look, I appreciate you. Man. I wish I had had, I heard you say after I did that interview, I didn't realize that, um, I wish I had had the, uh, that's not really a statistic. It's just the reality that, um, gay marriage isn't actually legal in Israel. I would have liked it's to have not, brought that up. It's not. 
what? And also like gay Palestinians that, do, I mean, oh my God, there's an article I can send you from Haaretz which talks about gay Palestinians who have snuggled into Israel basically because they maybe they escaped their families or like, you know, more conservative upbringings. And the, you know what happens to them? They get deported from Israel mm-hmm. back to Palestine, regardless mm-hmm. of how much danger. Sometimes they get blackmailed to help the intelligence agencies. That's mm-hmm. on vice. That's reporting literally on vice. I know they're bankrupt. It doesn't matter. But like they're, you know, like it's, 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 it's unbelievable. The kind of, the kinds of talking points. Okay. So sorry, you were telling me this. The, the, the oh yeah. I, I'm just, I'm not so saying sorry. anything like off the record or anything, but I was wondering well, just if he was going to be kind of upset with me or storm out. Cause also he, he came the day of the, of the Senate hearing on uh, censorship and what have you. And so we were sensibly supposed to be talking about that, but I had my own feelings because, you know, the whole stuff with and the you know squad. We celebrating you, girl. We are there in the room with you. I've been telling you. <laughs> well, we so, but it was, I was kind of off topic, right? Cause he was there, but the, I, I wanted to get into the Israel Palestine because it was did. right when the, the, the squad members had all just been chastised for saying that Israel was an apartheid state. So like, and he had just supported chastising them. And it was on my mind. Um, when the interview was over, he was not at all mad. He was still extremely friendly and gracious. And if I can say, here's, here's, okay. So after the first time we interviewed him, as soon as we cut the interview, he said, and I had never had any interaction with him before in my life. He said, it was great interviewing with you two, especially you, Brianna, you should quit rising and come work on my campaign. Okay, I'm sure I'm, I'm sure okay. honestly multiple campaign. I'm sorry, I'm sure multiple political people have offered you that. No, <laughs> like, no, no, but it know. was it was weird, right? Cuz like I was in the, in the no, first interview harder on him, right? Everybody watches Rising, Bree. Everybody <laughs> but, watches Rising. But it it was surprising because in the first interview, remember, I was like, okay. but you're not actually for Medicare for all and why do you think that you're going to have an easy time ending yeah, ending Bri, the but you're, but you're an icon. You're already like, <laughs> okay. you rising gets into people's. You don't believe me, but like rising gets into people's living rooms. What did Norman Finkelstein say? He said, "I can't wait to wake up in the morning and like just like watch rising." Well, Norm is a doll. No, no, no. He's not the only one. I'm waiting, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not the only one. Like Jonathan is there, and all. Oh, look at the chat. Everybody, everybody. <laughs> but but Neil, the point I'm just making is that like I thought he was going to be angry after the first interview, but he was like jokingly or not, come work on my campaign. And then after the second interview, but even after the second interview, which was like more um, adversarial, he was still very, very friendly. And when we were kind of chatting, continuing to chat about it afterward, I was like, but I was, I was like, Mr. Kennedy, I don't quite understand. Like, I don't understand. Like, you know that there's this portion of the left that really actually wants to get behind you, frankly. But But this is like a line in the sand. Like, why are you doing this? And I I think I also said something about how, like, Dennis Kucinich and these people around you seem to share my belief. And he alluded to, like, he said something that indicated that he knows that he is out of step with the progressives on his campaign like Dennis. Like, he knows it. But he had no hesitation in saying, well, but this is how it's going to be. And I, I had, I had, I just had a hard time reading what that was about. Let's, 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 can we dig into this? Cause I have, yeah. So there is, when he went on Glenn Greenwald, I noticed immediately that he was reciting when he came on, when he came to talk about Israel, 
he was reciting talking points, not even in a convincing way, not even mm-hmm. in a way that you would try to sell it. Here's the thing. If you're a Zionist who's trying to kill Palestinians on the low key and doesn't care, there is a way to do that in which you don't telegraph how much of a psycho you are. Like there's a way to say, yeah. I believe in the independence and human rights of everybody. And I just believe we have to continue to support aid to Palestinians. And you know what that means? That means fuck the Palestinians and I'm going to support Sheldon Adelson and all of the people paying me. Yeah. Like that's not, there's a way to disguise it. And there is a way in which, I mean, I'm fascinated with this because also like in his um, event with Shmuley, Rabbi mm. Shmuley, mm. fake Rabbi Shmuley, uh, Karma Sutra, Rabbi Shmuley, he wrote a book about kosher sex and stuff. I think it was oh, called Kosher mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like RFK, he's very, ca- here's the thing. Jonathan disagrees with me, but I'm just going to say this. He's very careful about every word that he says. He's not, nothing he says is unintentional. So even when he's like, he's a lawyer. So even when he says something like, oh, Habib, instead of hijab, I think he's trying to telegraph something like to, to, to whoever, to APA. I don't know. That like he's he's it's a deliberate thing. It's not a mistake. It's not like an oopsie. Like he's very much trying to signal to to an to an APAC lobby or something. I'm reading your script. But Even he's when doing I so it. much more. To your point, though, he seems to be doing so much more than anyone can even expect of your well, average. I mean, he makes he makes um uh, Hakeem Jeffries looks like look like Rashida Tlaib. Right. He's fucking it up. And, and, and I think that's what's so fascinating to me because he doesn't like even the thing he said. Here's the thing. I don't think it's a mistake. Like he said, and, and this is not a defense, by the way, of him whatsoever. I think he's disgusting at this point. But like, I think what he the words he uses are deliberate based on like what I've heard him say about. And I don't give a shit about vaccines, but like, I just know he's a he's a careful person about the words that come out of his mouth because of his voice. And when he started saying shit about like. You know, like, um, uh, like, you know, palace, like, it's just, it's so extreme that it has to be intentional. And I, for, for I, what I purpose, Neo? Like, what, what is he gained by it? I think, I mean, honestly, it's not popularity in the polls because here's the thing, another, here's the thing that I'm happy about. He was so, I don't know if you noticed, but like at the events he had with Shmuley, there were multiple interrupters. There were like no. I saw Sabi interviewed one of them, and it was it was a good segment about how and it seemed like, like he was almost ignorant. Like Rabbi Shmuley jumped up and shouted at this young woman, and like wouldn't even let RFK answer, and seemed to be like explaining to RFK. Like it seemed like RFK didn't even know what she was. Now I forget what the subject was. He just played it play out. He just played it play out, and it was a terrible look. It was a terrible look. Anyone that would yeah. care about how they. Were, like his polling has taken a dip. I know no one will believe yeah. me on this, but ever since, I mean, you can look from, I looked at, like since May, he hasn't polled at 20%. Like yeah. that, that was before, like Roger Waters made him take a credibility hit and I will yeah. die on that hill. I know no people don't care about that. People don't care about Palestine. Like I get that. <laughs> I'm telling you, I care about Palestine. And that he took a hit, a credibility hit. And what, and so he had to know what he was doing. Like, there's just no way around. Like, I don't think it was a mistake. And like, also like, remember like in all of the squad events, 
like all of the, like, you know, there's usually like security that jumps on you, <laughs> like to like, you know, like tackle the people who say anything out off of, out of line and like, mm-hmm. you know, escort them out. With Shmuley, it feels like he was kind of just letting it play out um, or Shmuley was letting it play out in a way that was terrible for both of them. Like both of them uh, on Twitter have lost credibility, in my opinion. And it's so, a terrible look for both of them. I mean, so I, I definitely think that it has significantly dampened his support on the left. I see, apparently, I'm looking on Twitter, um, in the, uh, in the, sorry, um, Jimmy Dore interview, Jimmy Dore asked if he would be willing to have a one-on-one with Max Blumenthal. And apparently he said yes. So Max just tweeted about how they're setting that up, which will I mean, be we excellent. You had Max on Rising and Max, God bless Max. I mean, he knew that, that that meant something to people when he like said what needed to be said about yep. like how awful racism. I'm so grateful for that because I got to say, if Max, as, as strong an advocate he as he has been him. for Palestinian rights, had softballed that at all. You do for the left all the time. You, he channeled the left sentiment in that moment, even though it was yeah. uncomfortable. It would have broken my heart if he hadn't done it. And it made me so happy that he did do it. And I'm like so grateful for him and other people who are just much more knowledgeable than me for. No, they're not more knowledgeable. Don't say. <sighs> well, no, it's true. Him. I mean, like Ma- Max is like a savant and has studied this stuff for years and. I don't, I don't accept t- putting yourself down, girl. I mean, at this point, well, I'm just, I mean, I'm just... all of the coverage you've had on Rising, Sharina Boakle, Palestine, Katie getting fired, I do not yeah. accept that you do not have expertise on this subject, and I do not accept... I need you to speak with confidence. Well, I learn from these other people, and I'm grateful for them. That's all I say. And I'm very much life. looking forward to Max and uh, RFK Jr., talking well, and I'm, i do i'm from israel and i'm telling you 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 represent our view like you represent the left and like i think rfk is doing something deliberate he's avoiding the left it's not it's not incidental it's not accidental yeah well i asked i did him. also ask him to come on bad faith at the end of our in-person interview and he said sure, yes but i haven't heard back from them of course you know. it's deliberate i mean that's that's an, that's the thing I, i'm fascinated by like what he thinks his strategy is at this point, because like he's obviously, I, I mean, he has to know at this point he's not going to win. Um, the well, this department. is what's interesting. So I have a theory I've been working on. Tell me what you think. Um, I've I've noticed he's been framing, he's been framing the Democratic Party, the mainstream Democratic Party's uh, position toward Israel as weak. And oh, while, like, the left, we obviously are like, well, there's bipartisan commitment to endless uh, Israel aid with no conditions, blah, 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 blah. He's going one step farther than saying, like, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar are anti-Semitic and oh we need God. to give aid. He Debbie Wasserman Schultz. He was like, why, exactly. why do you – I was like, Debbie Wasserman? Like, exactly. Has she ever called Israel an apartheid state? Ever? Like, what no, of course doing? not. So to me, I'm like, is this a new strategy? Is this an intentional escalation to not just paint the left as anti-Israel or anti-Semitic, but the entire Democratic Party such that it forces the Democratic Party even further to the right on Israel? Is this a, way, a, a weird strategy to escalate <laughs> Um, in a way that helps to perhaps reposition the country into traditional stances on Israel while, in, in response to the youth being more sympathetic to Palestinians? 
But but then it wouldn't make sense with something that Max pointed out, which is that Kennedy doesn't have, sorry, RFK doesn't have, it doesn't matter, who cares? We don't have, we don't <laughs> care. Um, I don't care what he's called. Um, he's, he doesn't have a history even of being such a blatant evil Zionist like that. Like, it's so clear. He's making it clear that like, oh, APAC came, Shmuley came as a representative to sort of defend me from anti-Semitism forevermore. And like, that's what it is. It's transactional. Like, he's telegraphing that it's completely, like, he's not even hiding it well. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like, I think he's, I think he's making it very obvious in a way that I would expect someone who was politically astute to hide better. Right. So, and, then, and then on top of all of this, Neil, what do you make of the weird 1488 tweet? Honestly, I don't know anything about 1488. I think it could be like a little Nazi like signaling. I heard that that, I, I mean, is that like a, I, I did, did, is that like so a known Nazi? I didn't it's know. It's fully Nazi it. signaling. It's, there's no ambiguity think, about the 14 stands for the 14 little words, which I don't know off the top of my head because I'm not a Nazi, but it's like, sure. uh, well, we need to protect so our children in the history, in the future of the white race. Okay. Something like that. And then the, and then the 88, um, is H H H is the eighth letter in the alphabet for Heil Hitler. Oh God. So what do you think? Do you think it was intentional? So if it was just like, of course, it could be the case that something could be two weeks in the past, 14 days, and also 88 days since whatever he was talking about. But it turns out that those time frames that he was referencing weren't even accurate. It had only been 57 days since whatever. So (laughs) that, like, the numbers not even being accurate on top of the way they were positioned, like, right after each other in the tweet, it starts to feel like you'd have to go out of your way to make these things and not happen. go. And again, if we connect it to, and again, I'm not trying to do, there's a lot of RFK fans that have been like calling me a Mossad agent, uh, which I will, <laughs> I mean, actually I don't want to deny being because it gives me power, but like, I mean, if, <laughs> if, if, if let's say that like, obviously, I mean, if, if like, like, let's say, I, I think someone told me something a while ago. It was actually Amanda, who's very um, mm-hmm. active on call-in, Amanda Rice. And she said, mm-hmm. like, what if RFK's, like, whole role is bringing in, like, non-voters, Republican voters, non-traditional voters back into voting in the Democratic primary and sort of into the political pro- shepherding, <laughs> she- sheepherding, mm. but like not the lefties because that's not who he's targeting. He's avoiding you guys. He's avoiding you at all costs. Even Max, who he knows personally, he's he knows his father, he's been to his home. He's avoiding him like the plague, not the Jewish plague, but like, you know what I mean? Like he's, like he's, he's there's a strategy here I don't know if he's trying to maybe bring more Republicans into the Democratic primary and helping the Democratic Democrats in that sense. I mean, look, we know he endorsed Hillary in in 2007, not even in 2008, when like right. you know the primary played out and Obama was, you know, or Kucinich or Gravel. Like there was a lot of you know interesting people in that primary. He endorsed Hillary right off the gate. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that, but I think it's hurting him in the polls that he's been such a steadfast APAC lobby. Like he's not even playing it smart. 
which I think is something intentional. And I don't know, I, I, I did have this thought of like, is he trying to like maybe put the Israel lobby on blast and make it really obvious that that's what's happening? Because the reality, like the, 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 the fallout from all of this is Shmuley looks embarrassing. RFK looks embarrassing. I mean, like he's but taking a hit. Purpose? He runs an entire presidential campaign just to make APAC look bad, but it doesn't really actually look bad to anybody other than us who already thought it was bad. No, but it looks bad to most people. Like it looks bad. To- Again, I was, I was just spanning the Jimmy Dore chat and I'm telling you, mm-hmm. I wasn't the only one that said free Palestine. Like also people were making fun of Jimmy for like, I'm sorry. Oh my God. I said I was going to be spicy so I can, I can let myself be. Um, it, that it was like access journalism. They did. Mm-hmm. They said that to Jimmy, like ask him a question, ask him a question because Jimmy kept asking about Carl Young and like frequencies and like the law of attraction and shit. I believe that shit, but like, you know, it was like an hour and no principled question was mm-hmm. asked of RFK. The only people, the only person so far who has asked RFK serious questions is Brianna Joy Gray about <laughs> Palestine. Jimmy did not. Um, but like people were pissed. And I think also something that Max points out frequently, and I think he did on Rising is that there was this Gallup poll. Um, I, I believe from April that showed that most Americans identify with Palestinians mm-hmm. 40, 49% over Israelis which is 38%. And it's the mm-hmm. first time ever. That's like an 11 point difference. This is why I'm saying with Palestinians and it has nothing to do with APAC lobbying or Palestinian lobbying because we know Palestinians don't have lobbying money. It's because they've been able to tell their stories and explain the horrors that are happening and, and, and with camera footage and video in the West Bank and Gaza. They've been able to explain what's happening and, and tell people what's really going on in a way that shifts the public discourse forever. And but, but why do you think that RFK Jr. is is on the side of us secretly to 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 stigmatize to to cast a negative light on APAC as opposed to that poll being so, something I don't that, think that puts the girl why would you say that about me? I would well, never say that like I'm RFK just saying like it seems to me like I think that that poll is indicative of something right like that the is, Israel lobby is in trouble that it needs to change tactics that the the kind of people are with Palestinians because of people yeah. like Gigi Hadid so then like what do you Obama. do about that people like who wear flags that say free Palestine people understand people see right so what do you do about that then it seems to me that there's an argument that it maybe they t- it's time to ratchet it up and to say that even Debbie Wasserman Schultz isn't faithful enough to Israel and and if can can they force the Democratic Party even more to the right and cut down on any perceived leniency that Democrats as the left institution in the United States have shown to Palestinian interests? I mean, but that's the thing. If you go to the right of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, I mean, how much further right can you get? I mean, it's the most right. Like it, it's it's like endless aid to Israel. Um, which by the way, I, I, I would, I mean, you know how I feel about Marianne, so I'm not going to get into it, but like, she doesn't want to condition aid to Israel anyway. So it's like, what is he doing? Like, I don't have the answers. Right. And honestly, I was talking to Jonathan earlier and I, and we were trying to argue, like, you know, who is worse, Marianne or RFK? Like, if you had to, if you had to, like, it was, if it was like a very merry kill, but like a really twisted version of that game, 
it's it's like it's like they're trying to outcompete each other in terms of who is worse. Neo, come on! Like I don't want to defend. Like I'm not interested in defending what Marianne's actual statements are, but comparatively to RFK, there's no comparison. Well, I mean, okay, if you really want me to say something, I will say to you in the nicest way I possibly can that their positions are actually pretty identical, except that Marianne has a more flowery language. I mean, there is no Neo, come on. I know you don't believe me, but like there is a, there's no real world expert that will tell you a two state solution is possible. There's less than 10% that, sorry, less than 10% even available in terms of available land. There's already a million settlements. And if you actually asked Marianne, Oh, so would you evacuate a million settlements? She, you know what she would tell you? Like if you actually pressed her on that, she would say, absolutely not. I'm not evacuating. So I think that's fair. I, I think that there is like fundamentally. So they're actually and pretty like emotional. Of, like, and I think it's not really like better to say something like, you know, oh, I believe in the human rights and the dignity of the Palestinians. Like that's bullshit. We've been getting that bullshit for 30 years. Like that's not, that's not real. And, and I'm not saying. I, I don't even want to play like you know who's worse. Like at this, I feel like they're both. Okay, then let's let's not let's not play it. I will say I don't know. I don't know that I agree that it's not meaningful to know that it's craven and bad to characterize the deaths, the like civilian casualty deaths of children as all purposeful when they're Israeli and intentional when they're. Can't, it has to be an accident. They just kill by accident. I mean, that's a, right. That's like, insane. I think that is that's especially a, crazy. I mean, that's, that's the statement from RFK that just keeps ringing in my head. That is, it's just, well, I don't know how we let that come out of his mouth. Well, I guess I just hold also like a particular grudge against people who like put flowery words over something and like give lip service to Palestinians while also, not actually I'm not saying it's, status quo. I'm not saying it's I, right or good. And I disagree, but I also think that there's something, I think Marianne's being driven by, you know, I I don't agree with it, but I have, I guess, a little bit more understanding. Like she's coming from the place of a Jewish woman of a certain age that feels this compulsion, like a, like a, like a compulsion. I don't want to say loyalty because of the tropes, but like a, a kind of historical, Defensiveness no, of Israel. Israel. No, I know, I know, I know you are. I know you are. No, no, but I and I'm, I don't I'm, agree I'm with so it. No, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. I don't I'm agree with it. Me. But I think her coming from there versus RFK coming from God knows where, like APAC. What? Oh, Why? No, I don't know. Like it's out. just. There's no history of that. It's completely transparent that it's about money. It's about super PAC money that's flowed to him or about Sheldon Adelson. I get it. I get it. Like, and that's why I think we manifested Dr. Cornell West because like he really like rose to the, like he's, isn't he perfect? Can you look, I, I really, I remember trying to have this conversation. Here's why I'll tell, I'll say I'll told you so, even though I said people shouldn't say this a year ago when I invited RBN on bad faith to discuss what the bluffed game plan was for the election, even though nobody had announced as of yet. I specifically was like, let's brainstorm. Sorry. I I was like, sorry. I'm sorry. I I said, let's literally today because I was like, Oh, I remember they said like Marianne was a Zionist and then you issued a correction during the episode. And I, I, so I went back and listened to it. (laughs) I don't know. 
Uh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I just, so I, I, I remember being like, okay, forget Marianne. They kept bringing up Marianne. I'm like, whoever it is, no one's announced yet. Who is your dream candidate? We're the left. Maybe we can recruit somebody. Like, it doesn't have to be a politician. It could be an academic. It could be, who's your dream candidate? Cornell West. And there was just like no appetite for thinking outside of the box at all. And so, yeah, I'm really well, glad that our, that uh, Cornell West is running. In many ways, he is the dream. I just really hope that he understands. Isn't he Teflon? Isn't he Teflon? He, like, there's no criticism that doesn't. Well, sorry, he's going to get some. But I just hope he understands what he's doing and what this means. And that his, he's, like, really committed to it. Um, because the way that the campaign started was a little fits and starts. But this I mean, could be... Maybe, maybe, maybe in some circles, but I, I remember like, I mean, look, I'm not involved with any party. I am not involved with the Cornet West campaign, although I did sign up on the mailing list to sort of like see if they need help with ballot access and shit mm-hmm. because oh, God damn it, he's a hero. But like, I, I feel like that rollout, most people didn't care that like, Oh, it was the People's Party. I mean, when oh, you- Oh, no, no, no. It's not that campaign, I think that people care, Neo. It's no that I wa- up, I'm like, afraid- I'm afraid that it's indicative of like a lack of thoughtfulness and organization on the campaign. Not that it stigmatized him to the broader public who were not aware and do not know who Nick Branagh is, but I'm just, I am concerned. I hope there's a a seriousness about how the campaign is being run. That was not reflected in the launch. That's well, I think honestly, what I've heard some people say is like, actually, I think I heard um, Nick from RBN say is that it was actually like unintentionally a brilliant 3D chess move. And I don't think I don't think uh, you heard this or maybe you, you won't agree with this. But like the fact that he came out with the people's party first mm-hmm. and people were like, oh, you're not serious. You should join the Green Party, join the Green Party and then we'll take you serious. And then he called them on their bluff and sort of switched. Mm-hmm. And then people were like, actually, we think we need to, we need, you need to run as a Democrat. And then bust yeah. star, right? Like a write up for the nation and trying to like will it into being. It called them on their bluff in a, in a weird way. It was actually like, I know that Cornell, like, sorry, Dr. West calls it like a jazz thing of like just moving from place to, but like, I think it was actually like great. Like the way that played out. Well, I, I don't honestly, think it was purposeful. I mean, it, it might have had the effect of kind of catching people uh, as saying, well, I would vote for him if, and then the if became true, and now they're kind of stuck, and they can't move the goalpost, or if they do, they look really disingenuous. So I think it had that effect for sure, but I do not think that – I, I mean, I know it wasn't purposeful. It was an accident. And again, like I said on the episode, I, mean, I – I'm not saying Cornell planned it from the beginning, I, I, Cornel West did not know, or he said he did not know anything about the Nick Branna scandal. I think that that in of itself is a kind of show of negligence. I love Cornel West, but like, come on, you're going to launch with a party and you haven't done like the basic Google search of what's up with the MPP. Cause if you did, that's the first stuff that would come up. And so yeah, like, I, I just that. hope there's more due diligence in the rest of the campaign. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I mean, I also think that like comparing it to other, the other two parties for people, it's not like, like Cornell West is still like, like he is the perfect, I think, candidate we could have ever, I don't think there could have been a better. In many ways he is, Neil, but you also can't, you can't also ignore the fact 
that he did tell everybody to vote for Biden in 2020. He said the fascists are at the door. He said all the same stuff Marianne said. He didn't vote for Biden. Excuse me. He didn't vote. Sorry. I'm not, I didn't mean that excuse me like Megan McCain in the view. (laughs) Like, like, excuse me. But like, I mean, like, excuse me. He didn't vote for Biden. He admitted to CNN that he actually voted, like he actually couldn't. Like he got in the voting booth and he just couldn't vote for the man. Okay, but that's almost worse, no? That he told people they should vote for Biden but didn't do it himself? even like i don't know i don't remember what i ate yesterday. no neo like, everybody remembers when it comes down to other candidates can he, reach, you, can he reach liberals can he reach can he convert the liberals that we need to be converted into like leftism and make them look, see we'll, we'll see i don't think marianne telling people to vote for joe biden is disqualifying i don't even think that rfk jr campaigning for hillary clinton is disqualifying i'll, I'll be judging those candidates yeah, I, on other I mean, things i mean well, I mean, I, look, I kind of I, I'll okay. judge them. It's, that I, alone wouldn't disqualify them for me. However, I I do take issue with people having those problems with those other candidates, but not also calling out Cornell West. You don't remember him being on bad faith, refusing, uh, calling Trump a fascist and refusing to call uh, Biden a fascist last fall. I love Cornell West. Yeah, you know, I love Cornell West, but let's just be honest about the trajectory he's been on. That's all yeah, I'm saying. No, like, let's just so treat them all equally. So he, so he called Trump um, a neo-fascist and Biden like. Uh, yes, and I was like, well, what do you? Milk, some of the things you just. A milk toast yeah, I, I, yeah, I just I described some of the things he said. Some of the things he said about Trump. I said, well, Biden in the last year or whatever had been at the time has done X, Y, and Z. So what what is the definition of fascist you're using here? And what is your criticism of Joe Biden and the corporate money that he's taken? I think it was around the time of the. Um, uh, the the rail strike, and there had just been that letter written by all the titans of industry to Joe Biden asking them to, asking him to crush the rail strike. And I think I asked him if if you have this evidence that business leaders are literally directing the president to crush a strike in their interest. It's not that not the union between capital and politics that is definitionally a problem when we're talking about fascism. Like why not use that word for Biden? And he you know declined to do so. Hmm. I mean, do you think he has moved since then? Maybe, and I'm open to it. By maybe running green against, like, you know, isn't that a sort of testament uh, to being persuaded by people like you? And and having moved? Maybe, and I'm here for it. I'm I'm open to him changing. I'm open to it, but Neil, let's keep one eye open the same way that we have skepticism about everybody else. Let's just keep one eye open. by love. <laughs> this isn't Love Island. I am not. Listen, I, I'm such a fan of The Bachelor, and also, by the way, there's a show called Unreal. Have you ever seen it? It's about Unreal? behind the scenes of the, Unreal. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's behind the scenes of what? Uh, behind the scenes of like a show like The Bachelor, and and how like reality TV actually works, and all of that stuff. Oh, I think Tangent. I actually have heard of that. Okay, oh look. God, that's- Neil, I've got to go because I wanted to wrap at two hours and I wanted to get through a few more callers. But I've been having a lot of fun, obviously, with you here. I love you always. <laughs> Let me do bestie. Keep the faith. Okay. Um, uh, let's go to Eric. And you'll probably be the last caller, Eric. What's on your mind? Can you meet yourself, Eric? Are you with us? 
Eric was like, you were going on with Neil for so long, I started making lasagna. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was not doing that. I actually already ate. (laughs) I was not expecting this. I was actually watching the Harley Quinn animated show. Got caught up on that. Oh, fun. Okay. All right. Well, what was on your mind real quick since you're wrapping us up here tonight? Oh, so real quick was on my mind was I just had to say that I really actually enjoyed the um, breakdown that you did last week with Leslie and um, was it Kate? Kate, thank you, because I'm shocked that nobody here wanted to talk about Barbie in the last two and a half hours. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I I, I actually really enjoyed that breakdown because it's been like the way you broke it down has been something I've been thinking about trying to do like a YouTube show because I watch a lot of movies. I'm actually probably going to see, like, four movies just this week. And I've always wanted, especially since, you know, I work in the TV and film industry, so it's kind of very slow for me right now with the two strikes mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. And I was always thinking about starting up some type of podcast where I just talk about movies. But instead of, like, reviewing them, getting more into, like, the uh, some of the psychology that the movie brings up and maybe even some of the politics that may be hidden within the movies. And I really enjoyed how y'all... Because I have not, I can't, first of all, I, Barbie, I've been trying to actually see it just so I can be, you know, informed about um, the movie itself going on. Because loves this movie, loves Barbie. Mm-hmm. And when I was hearing uh, you, Les, even though there are some, even though I didn't see the movie, there are certain aspects, because I've listened to Leslie talk about other movies before, I don't. One of the things he said when he calls like Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig like not good <laughs> writers, I'm like, I understand what you mean, but I'm like, you, I'm sorry, you can't call Gre- Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach not not be particularly fond of their writing style, but I I I could not call them not good writers. Yeah, Leslie likes to throw those kinds of bombs. I love Leslie. I made the decision. I like. I made the decision not to argue with him about that because it could have been the whole episode of us arguing about that. I, I, you gotta, you just gotta pick your battles. Yes, definitely. I definitely under that. There's certain times when I have conversations with certain people where I'm like, I'm gonna just let certain things slide because I just can't. Um, but um, and what's funny is that your conversations about the movie actually really because I listened to you and I listened to. Um, um, Crystal Ball, when she did like a little radar about the review of the mm-hmm. movie, I had some issues, mainly my main issue, like she really didn't review the movie per se, she just got upset because she was like, how there were little girls watching this movie and I just gotta get to the point, I'm like, well the movie's rated PG-13, so I'm sorry yeah. if a parent brings a little six-year-old girl to a PG-13 movie, I understand it's about Barbie, but at the end of the point, if they get like some like, you know, because there's, there's a joke a joke about masturbation called beaching off. Yeah. In the movie, I'm like, that's on the parent. Like, That's also in the previews. Yeah. I'm like, you didn't do your due diligence. So I didn't care for that factor. But what I really liked was how you guys talked because it was the way you broke down the movie to me was like, oh, that's exactly what I expect from Greta Gerwig. In a movie like yeah. Barbie, because she, you know, to me when I read when I watch Greta Gerwig stuff, and I've liked some of her movies. I like I really enjoyed her remake of uh, Little Woman, even though it, to me the original is still the best one. Yeah, me too, and I I really like Lady Bird. 
And I like Lady Bird, but like when I see Greta Gerwig, I think, you know, this is a very typical white, you know, feminist, liberal type woman of yeah. a particular age. Yeah, she is who that, she is. Yeah, she knows who is. And I, when you were talking about Barbie, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I would assume she would put in this movie that coming, you know, having like my leftist politics in it and how it, I can see from what you guys were saying that it seemed a little bit muddled in what it was actually trying to say. Yeah. I mean, that's why that was my first question. You should really watch it because what, what I so I watched um, Crystal's radar, or like at least part of it as I was driving up in the drive through and it was, you know, critical of the movie. And I was like in my pink dress, ready to have fun and my little, you know, convertible Mini Cooper, like trying to live my best life. And I was like, come on, Crystal, can I live? <laughs> and, like, I had the same reaction that like so many people had to my episode. Like, can't we just enjoy things? Like I was, I had my popcorn and my goobers and I was ready to enjoy things, you know, on my vacation. And that's what I heard from a like, and a lot of people that I know who enjoyed it were, you know, girls in their mid twenties, early twenties, mid twenties, who just loved this movie and just had so much fun. Just go and I mean, I did have fun. Yeah. I, and I had fun. I enjoyed the movie, but like, I don't know. I like to talk about things. So yeah. this, even if I like something, I'm going to talk it to death. Because <laughs> one of the things I had, I had a conversation because I, the movie I went to see because I had got tickets like a month in advance was Oppenheimer because that's Christopher Nolan, one of my favorite directors mm-hmm. that's up my alley. And so I had got tickets to go see it in the, um, the AMC, but on Lincoln and the Broadway, which is like the largest um, IMAX theater that you can go to in the Northeast. Is it real IMAX? Because the yeah. person that I saw Barbie with is very much um, like film guy who's like, there's only nine, 19 IMAX theaters uh, that have real IMAX projection in the United States of America. And we have to wait till we're near one of those <laughs> cities till we go and see Oppenheimer. Yes, this is, it was actually real IMAX 70 millimeter. And I love okay. the moment of it. But we, but even though I really enjoyed, I really loved Oppenheimer. But I was having a conversation with my friend who was also kind of a history buff. And we were able like, to really get into the nitty gritty of the movie and the fact that one of the, my, I mean, I can't, I don't know if it's a criticism, but one of the failings of the movie is it brushes over the, um, the effects of building the Manhattan Project, where they built it, and the amount of this place, you know, indigenous people that mm-hmm. occurred in that area. It doesn't talk about the fallout that happened in that area and the many people that got sick when they um, tested the bomb in the first place. So, like, I, mm-hmm. I, I like getting into that because to me, you know, there's I didn't expect the movie to do that because, it, again, like, I I understand, you know, the director that I'm dealing with, the context within this movie, the context of the uh, society that this movie is made in. So there's certain things that, you know, I, I know some people are now coming up, they're kind of upset with the fact that the movie didn't do that. But at the same time, like, why would you expect the movie to do that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw the criticisms of the movie, either about native populations or, you know, the extent to the how, how the Japanese were handled in the movie and all the civilian casualties. And I, I definitely hear all those criticisms, but I, I feel like I need to watch the movie to consider how much, you know, is it just a biopic? Biopic, I never know how to say that. And... Right. You know, why we would like for that sort of thing to be in, like maybe that's just, just isn't the time and place. I mean, because the Barbie movie, honestly, like I would, it would have been almost perfect if they had just, if they had just like not tried to do all that feminism in it. Like, I'm not trying to be an asshole. <laughs> 
Like, I'm so here for feminism, but they did it so badly, it made feminism look terrible. But I can see Greta Gerwig being someone being extremely heavy-handed with it. It was, you got it, like, there's no amount of me describing it to, to explain to you, but it's like a two-hour movie, mm-hmm. and 30 minutes could easily be cut. Mm. You, you, you have a character in um, America Ferreira, who's, you know, the real-world character that's inspired Barbie's malaise that's caused her to get depressed and have to go to the real world to fix her brain problems. And we're told that America Ferreira is having real problems of being a woman. It's hard to be a woman. Okay. Later in the movie, America Ferreira gives a big speech about, like, how hard it is to be a woman, and that ends up, like, saving the day for reasons that I won't get into. But it's, like, the big speech, because she gives this speech, the Barbies are able to save the day. At no point in the movie do we get a single solitary explanation for why America Ferreira is sad. What are her woman problems? Just being a woman? Probably that's exactly what it was. Just being a woman is problematic. You know, is she being treated badly at work because she's a woman? Is she in an unequal relationship and her partner's not pulling his weight because she's a woman and he's a man? You know, is she, I mean, there's a line about, she's, she's fighting with her teenage daughter, fair enough. And there's a line in the movie about how dads don't get the brunt of teenage angst, or the moms get the blame, which I think is true in some ways, but also a little reductive. I mean, dads also don't love parenting teenagers because teenagers are shitty and it's hard for all parents. Like, and what's even worse, I didn't think about this until just now. Using America Ferreira, a Latina woman, as the vessel for this white female politics is kind of fucked up. Mm. Like, because uh, nope, is, is she struggling financially? What is her problem? Uh-huh. I would have so much more sympathy for this speech about how hard her life is as a woman if the movie told me even one time, a little bit, what her effing problem is. I'm I'm here ready to sympathize with you, America. Life is hard. Life is hard in so many different ways that dispropor- disproportionately affect women. Just tell me one way. It's affecting you, so I sympathize with you. One. Can I? In a two-hour movie, they don't say a single solitary thing about specifically why her life is hard as a woman. So then when she gives this big moving speech about how women have a double standard and we can't be, we have to be thin, but can't talk about dieting. We have to be this and we can't be that. You haven't told me that that has actually happened to you once in your life. Yes. It's just meant to be understood. Uh-huh. We don't get a shot of her being told she's too fat or too thin, or too messy, or a bad parent, or, like, we don't get a shot, we don't see her in her life experiencing any of it. In the movie, is America Ferreira's husband white? Yes, and that ends up tacitly becoming a thing, too. Can I, can, okay, I want a little bit spicy, I'm not sure, you don't have to go into this if you don't want to, I, just, I have a feeling, because I, you know, as a black male, I have this I have this weird this weird thing now where I'm seeing a lot of shows and a lot of movies where I have no issues with, you know, interracial interracial relationships. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me that every time a new movie comes out and a new show comes out, there's a like there's like it's very sometimes it's like very difficult where you just don't see like a black man and a black woman mm-hmm. or a Latino man and a Latino woman. It seems like why is everyone in interracial relationships? In I mean, this country? is what Joe Biden was saying, real talk. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is going on? It's, it's like, 
Well, Will Smith used to say back in the day that he could never get cast with a black female lead because then it became a black movie. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also like a casting thing where, you know, if you cast like two people of the same race, then you got to cast all of the extended family and all of the kids of that race. If you do one parent of each two things, you know, how Hollywood is being run by the mixed kid cabal. God bless. I love Zahar. Uh, what's her name? Zendaya? Is it not Zendaya? I mean, I do love Zendaya, but yeah. that little girl from Blackish. Oh, 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 I love her. Mar- She's beautiful, though. She's half Persian and half black. Oh, you're talking about Yara. Yara Shidi. I love all those little light skinned girls as much as anybody else. It's not their fault. Not their fault. It's not their fault, but yeah. like you cannot not notice. Yeah. how much casting directors love to cast them and it makes it a lot easier if they're supposed to be a mixed race kid mm-hmm. or in a mixed race family. Okay. So like look at last of us even where they cast, um, Tandy Newton, who I also love. It's not Tandy Newton's fault. I love her. She's a queen, but they cast her little daughter as Pedro Pascal's real life daughter in last of us. Uh-huh. So they're doing all kinds of interesting racial things. I mean, because the implication is Pedro Pascal's wife was maybe black because this little girl, even though she's only a quarter black, looks like a half black girl. Yeah. Shout out to Tandy Newton's mom's jeans being strong as hell. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so I think I, I definitely noticed it. But in the movie, the purpose that it served was this. I did not know she was married until the very end. The implication of the movie was very much that she was widowed or divorced, that she was a single parent. Uh-huh. Tell me in the in the comments if you agree or disagree. But I was shocked at the end of the movie where they cut to the husband or the father. It's unclear if they're married or not, but they cut to the father and they used him to make a joke that they, for some reason they had him at home. Like he's been sitting at home the whole time. They've been on this adventure learning Spanish on Duolingo. Now, why would they have him of doing all things sitting at home learning Spanish on Duolingo? It's because the movie didn't just want to cast a white guy. They wanted you to really know he was white and not like white Hispanic. Uh-huh. They wanted you to know fully. I mean, obviously, you can be white Hispanic and not speak Spanish. But it felt like the movie was t- trying to tell us, no, this is a green go. <laughs> Hold on. And it seems like it was also trying to say something about, and maybe not intentionally, but through just, you know, unintentionally, it maybe said something you know, like the absent-minded father, which I know some people are having, you know, some guys have an issue with that. Yeah. There's this trope where, you know, the father is always this absent-minded idiot who doesn't know what's going on, you know, and I can understand, you know, men feeling a type of way about that because they're like, no, it's not true. Yes, and it was just like, look, uh, women are expected to do a disproportionate amount of child-rearing and housework and all of those things still persist. But like, at a certain point, like, make the case for that's what, what this guy is doing. Show that this guy is actually not a good father or husband. Don't just have us assuming that because he's a man, because he's a white man, <laughs> that he's a bad guy. Uh-huh. Like, just show it. If you want to write a character who is a bad guy, write the character who's a bad guy. But trying to have his, like, whiteness as a stand-in, is for him being like an absentee parent or like a like a goofy guy like I, I, it was weird like again i don't know what the movie was trying to say it was such a weird choice uh-huh. well i got tickets to see it friday so i'm definitely looking forward to it just to see if i have the same feelings and everything like that but before i go i just gotta say two more things one if you ever decide to switch gears 
I think you would make a really good like movie critic podcaster because when you talk about like shows or movies, the way you delve into it and you're able because it seems like you have a film education. I'm not sure if you took a film class or. A film oh, class. that's such a nice thing for someone in the industry to say to me. I'm very flattered. Um, I did take one film class in college. <laughs> well, it must have stuck. And the last thing I say, if you ever get a chance, I'm not sure how much you are into horror movies. But oh, I, I love horror movies. I just saw a really, really good horror movie called Talk to Me. Talk to Me. Yes, it's a it's a it's a A twenty four. It's a very small movie, not a large budget, but it is. I to me, it's the best horror movie to come out this year. Um, I have to see if you know the new Exorcist. Uh, like a, a Suigo can hold up to it, but Talk to Me is a really really good movie. Okay, I will look into this. Oh, okay, so the best horror movie I saw this year, I guess it was last year. Did you watch that one with Justin Long and he has the Airbnb yeah, property? Barbarian. So good. I and the, and the loved that. that. No one, I, I love Barbarian because it's, that a lot of people actually ended up, not a lot of people, but it did pretty well for his budget. And that no one, that movie is a lot more woke than people realize. And I love when people watch a movie and don't realize kind of how quote unquote woke it is. Because the whole point of that movie is how people don't listen to women. And if everyone <laughs> listened to that woman, everyone would have been alive. Yes, it's <laughs> also a critique of landlords. Hello. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, yeah, I would love. I, I watched Barbarian with my friend Joe from Swody, and I like we were talking about it for like weeks after. And I was like, Joe, this is more evidence that we should just have Swody again. Like, you need to be podcasting with me. We have so much to say. So we'll see. You know, the format of Swody was also that we would do half the podcast on a pop culture subject and half on a political subject, and there would be bleeding, like you know, pop culture things are political, and political things are salacious sometimes. Um, but I felt like that also kept the podcast more engaging. Because yeah. sometimes you're just not in the mood for all that politics. Mm, that's definitely true. And that's why I love, like, I love Useful Idiots. Because I love hearing Katie and Aaron, like, shoot the shit at the top of the episode. And then it's like, okay, I got my candy. Now I'll do my veg- vegetables of listening to whatever expert comes on after. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been fun. Thank you for, you know, taking my call. You have a go and keep the faith. Thank you, you too. Jordan, I see you saying like you want to weigh in on um, the racial dynamics of the movies and stuff. Like, I am very interested in your take. Maybe we can do the next call and revisit Barbie after some more of you have seen it because I don't want to just be talking at you and explaining the plot. I really want to get your guys' feedback and maybe we can do a stream on YouTube as well and so we can get some more people in the conversation and broaden it out a little bit to a bigger audience. Because let me tell you, me and the person I saw the movie with we would I tell you that we talked for at least five hours after the movie because we both obviously saw the double feature with Legally Blonde we had I had so much more to say <laughs> and we were like I was like should I write an article or something because we we analyzed the shit out of this movie together the night before um and so I was very prepared with thoughts and feelings on the podcast but I I have even I've got even more to get out there and I was really surprised by how People did not want to hear what I had to say on YouTube. So um, let's definitely get into it again. I had so much fun with you guys. I'm going to give you an extra special playout song. Wait a minute. Give me a second. Because this is the song from the Barbie movie um, that I really loved. 
And I thought it was hilarious that they were calling the Stupid Man song because it's the song that I personally relate to the relate to the most. <laughs> oh, why is this not coming through the right speaker? Oh, I see. Sorry, that's just blasting through my entire apartment. That's why you can hear it. <laughs> there it goes. Alright, guys. Good, good talk. I've missed you. Let's do this more regularly. Keep the faith. Yes. <laughs> 